Hello, just a quick bit before this week's episode to let you know that we have a Patreon you can subscribe to if you like what we're doing here and you want more of it. You probably already knew that. We don't stop going on about it. What you didn't know is that you can currently get a little free trial so you know exactly what you'd get as part of your subscription. You can head to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in the show notes to get your first seven days free. All you need to do is pick which tier you'd like a free trial of. The Biggest Mates tier is the one that has all the extras in it. And then for seven days, you are free to listen to any episode we've released in the last six months. You can cancel any time or just leave the subscription rolling if you like what you find. It's charged monthly. And during any month, as part of that Biggest Mates tier, you'll get ad-free episodes of this show every Monday. You'll get a brand new episode of our new Manic Street Preacher show every month. Two episodes every month of The Ultimate Playlist, our themed playlist show, where we talk about all kinds of different music, different artists, different genres, different eras, and one or two bonus episodes every month, depending on the length of the month. That's two episodes every week. There's also other tiers to trial. One that is just the Manic Show and ad-free What Is Music episodes, and another that is just ad-free What Is Music episodes. But hey, if the first seven days are free, why not try a bit of everything? Plus, all tiers include access to the exclusive subscriber-only Discord where we discuss the shows, the bands we've covered, various music topics, and loads of other stuff, including some games that the friendly community have devised themselves. So head on over to our Patreon page now to claim your free seven-day trial. Go to patreon.com slash whatismusicpod or follow the link in our show notes. See you there. The, 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 the alarming thing is, like when I first listened to your podcast, it was like, who the fuck's this Lucas guy? And then I find myself agreeing with you on lots of things, and it, and it alarms me. Yeah, it's like it's like who who picks freedom of speech for their favourite song Isn't from No Your Enemy? And an excellent choice because that's the song <laughs> that I did. So it's. Uh, yeah. um, I yeah. I don't understand how you are functioning at what is half seven in the morning for you. You forget how old I am. We don't need much <laughs> sleep as you get as you get older. You, you don't need oh, really? much sleep. So because I slept for ten uh, hours last yeah, night and then had a nap this afternoon. <laughs> I mean, my, my grandparents used to tell me this when I was younger. It's like, oh, you don't need much sleep as you get older, and so like, that's rubbish. I'm going to at least twelve hours a day, and uh, and now yeah, they're totally right. I sort of I go to bed about midnight, one o'clock, and I'm usually up by now anyway. Oh, so my goodness, my time frame yeah. should shift. No, I mean, normally my wife gets up for work pretty early, and um, so I kind of get up and feed the cat and do all that stuff. So, But I'm actually away. I'm, I'm actually down in the South Island at the moment. Oh, so. okay. So I, I was, I was going to ask, actually, are you in a hotel room? Because I can't... It genuinely looks like a Zoom background, like the, you know, the background. <laughs> it's thing. an actual hotel room. It looks room. really uh, like, it's... I don't know, the way, the, the way it's lit, it looks very <laughs> like it's superimposed. <laughs> I took a little bit of effort to try and get the lighting right for you. It's... I appreciate this yeah. is a podcast, not a video Compared cast, to me, who it's... have got a window behind me, and it's just glare. It's awful. And a bra hanging up. <laughs> Yeah, oh, at least yeah. you're taking your sort of dirty underwear off the bed. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, that's it. Yeah, there you is say that is it's right there is the laundry them. hanging yeah. up right there. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think after sort of you know five weeks of lockdown here, where I did a million Zoom calls to have, mm. you know, I, I thought at least I'd make the effort and wash my hair and at least try and like be presentable. And I've got to go to meetings as soon as I finish because this is my morning. I'm in your future essentially, so I'm in. Yeah. I'm Thursday morning, and you know, so it's. 
I'm literally in the future. Well, we appreciate that you never, very much. Thank you very much. That will never not blow my mind, time time differences. <laughs> I'm always like, what time is it there? Steve, do you, Steve, Ooh, you do know is. that if you fly from Australia to LA, you go back a day, right? What? You just literally... I, I've had... You cross yeah, I've had super long birthdays by sort of like getting on a flight on my birthday and going to LA and having another birthday. And that so. is how you party when you're in the music yeah, industry. <laughs> Hello <laughs> yes, and uh, yeah. welcome to Do You Love Us? A critical analysis of the history, cultural impact and music of Planetary Creatures. Uh, we're going through the discography, album by album, track by track, asking the questions, does context matter when listening to music? Does knowing the history of a musical artist affect the way we feel about them? And more importantly, do you love us? Do you love us referring to Planetary Preachers and not the hosts of the podcast? Do you love us? To which you are now listening. I th- figured I'd write it down as we have nicely as done. We have yeah. a guest in. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, aside yeah, from the guest, though, almost professional. <laughs> yeah, almost. almost. Aside from the guest, though, I'm I'm joined by Lucas Way. Hi. And Steve Murphy. <laughs> Hi. And our guest today is joining us all the way from New Zealand, and uh, as you will have heard in our intro, is in the music industry and is uh, a producer. Uh, and well, amongst various other things, also a musician and has worked with various artists, including Catatonia and uh, Super Fairy Animals and Bullet for My Valentine, Steve, that one's for you, and John Cale and In Me and Mel C. Is that right? Which of the Mel's was it? That is. Okay. It's a, it's a bit of an, bit of an outlier, yeah. but yes. And I don't think I'm yeah. missing anybody from that list. Uh, oh, uh, Ma- well, apart, apart from the other kind Manage of like creatures. three or four hundred people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yes, that's a pretty good synopsis. Um, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we are very excited and I think it's my pleasure. I, 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 I'm not sure if it is my pleasure, but we'll guess we'll find out <laughs> well, in the next... Yeah, over the next hour or so, maybe we'll find out if it's your pleasure or Six hours. if you've made a horrible mistake. Yeah, and I say an hour... <laughs> probably looking at three or four uh, from the way that we do <laughs> um so what i want to do first is kind of start at the very basics i'd like to go through your history with the manic sort of chronologically if that's okay with you greg yeah yeah um but i want to start at the very sort of basics because I, I i i listen to a lot of music-based podcasts and everyone talks about producers and engineers and stuff um so i want to get like i want to start at the real basics actually let's start even more basic than that greg what is music ah the old what is music question i've heard this one before um I, if if first of all smart ass i'd probably just say life Oh, oh dear. Yes. <laughs> Why do they get better every time? You know, I'm gonna, to be fair to you, I've, I, you ask that question to people all the time, and it's like, should I come up with a real smart-ass answer, or should I be really philosophical about it? But, um, yeah, I mean, for me, I guess it is. That would be a, the one-word answer, because that's, that's all I've done for my whole, well, since I was 15 years old. So it's been various paths through, through music as a musician, producer, engineer, you know, I have record labels. I've sort of been at all aspects of the industry. So, yeah, I guess I guess for me that's that would be that would be it really. And it started that early when you were 15. Yeah, I mean I guess I mean looking at musicians I know now. I mean I've just produced an album for a band from New Zealand and the on the first session the bass player had only just turned 13. Ooh, wow. So, you know, what? and they're a great young punk band and the the, the oldest members only 16 and it's like I could barely tie my shoelaces at that age, you know, and, it's, <laughs> and I didn't start playing drums until I was like 15. So it was like, 
Yeah, I think I think kids who've got like parents who are musicians, they tend to start a lot younger. So fifteen actually seems quite late for me now. But but yeah, so it was just playing in school bands and and um, so and it's just, just been a massive part of your life. Yeah, that's why that answer. Yeah, completely I mean, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. You know, I, I was I was I was sent away to public school, and it was like I think they expected me to be a lawyer or a you know solicitor or accountant or something, and it's like. Then I, then I played in a band and it was like, oh, this is what I want to do. And then try to convince people mm. that that was a, a, a sort of a reputable career path. It was difficult. Right, that's the difficult bit, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and especially for my, my, my parents who you know, had spent a lot of my education and sort of wanted to, you know, me to have, you know, I mean, take over dad's company or something. But, yeah, they were great. They support, they, they're like, well, you want to, you know, my dad was, you know, sort of a proper cockney, you know, you got to do what you love doing and all that. And, uh I don't think he quite bought into the fact that I wanted to be a musician, but but he, he supported <laughs> it. And when I stopped asking him for money, he thought I'm sure he thought that was all right. So <laughs> I was going to say that is something I cannot relate to: is the oh, just do what you want. It's like no, take do maths, do maths at college. That's sensible. So and and what are you going to do with maths? <laughs> yeah, teach maths. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a never-ending cycle. Yeah. <laughs> So it's um, yeah. So I, so I was really lucky, and they were supportive, and uh, and um, and then it was just a question of, I think I realised pretty early on I was never going to be like the front guy in a band or anything like that. So that idea of being a support musician or a producer or something that was kind of like back more of a backroom role was quite appealing because it's once I'd done a lot of touring and play and uh, and and gigs and recording, I've kind of realised that how do you sustain a career? beyond like 30 years old in an industry that's essentially a young person's industry i mean bands like the manics are pretty much an outlier really that they have a career that goes that long yeah it's, yeah you know, it is it um, is a real rarity especially these days and well i mean i've I been it's been you know i was with i've been working with the band for about 10 years and it's been they've been together as long as they were how do, how do i describe this so it's been like since i finished working with them it's been they've been another 14 15 years of their career you know and and Around that time, ran ran sort of the, you know the two thousands. You know there, there was it was touch and go whether they were going to carry on then, and it's like you just don't know that. And now they've had this incredible long legacy career, so it's so it's quite nice to see that from outside. Which you know, so now I can listen to their records like a fan again, as opposed to yeah, you know, being involved Work. in the weeds and knowing all the ins and outs, and you know, mm. so it's it's been really nice to kind of um, just be yeah be a. Were you a fan of them before you started working with them? Not massive. I mean, it was my first recollections were I had a little recording studio in there was a, there was a studio complex in in Cardiff, and there was there was one there were two buildings. One building was the old Sound Space building where they recorded the Holy Bible record. Yes, is that the and big I noise? First, that, yeah, that, that, that well, no, that was Sound Space. Um, big noise came later, so Sound Space was the studio where the Holy Bible was done. And the first time I, I saw them was, I had a studio in, in the other building that the same people owned, which is a rehearsal studio. And I rented a room and I had a, I, I had a publishing deal with the EMI at the time and I was doing songwriting and I was actually doing a lot of electronic and dance music then. Mm. And um, I remember I popped over because they'd blown up a speaker and I, and I went and lent them some speakers when they were doing the Holy Bible record. Cool. Very cool. And then they used then, and then, um, and that's when Richie was still around. And then they used to rehearse in the next room to me um so you would be um 
you know, I'd be trying to write some songs and then and, then, and they'd be kind of blasting out to the Holy Bible songs. And then I'd go and sit up. There's a, there's a little um, cubby hole where you can make cups of tea. So I'd, just, I'd pop in there and let Richie be making a cup of tea. And he'd sit around and sort of have a cup of tea and so I'd have a chat and things. But they all thought I was a bit weird because I was this kind of like 80s musician with a mullet living in this little <laughs> room with my dog. <laughs> and, uh, and they were like, um, they obviously, and I thought, who are those miserable bastards? And they, they were like, who's that weird guy with the dog and the muller? And it's like, it was definitely, I remember at one point getting locked in the building and all being awkwardly trapped on the, in the stairwell and like no one really saying anything. And it was like, oh man, these guys are idiots. And then, uh, you know, and then who would have thought like 10 years of working together and just like, you know, being really good friends and just like having that whole, yeah, it was, it was from, it was a really weird, awkward start. And and that and then and then obviously then we took over myself and Kerry Collier who was my business partner we bought Soundspace and then it became and then we then we rebranded it as Big Noise um and uh yeah and just renovated the place and then the, the band came back to do the final sort of finishing touches and everything must go but also lots of b-sides like Mr. Carbohydrate Dead Trees and Traffic Islands so that was my first real um, sort of like time spent with them, hanging out, right. drinking coffee, talking stuff, talking cars with Sean, and all the stuff that you do, you know. And uh, I, but it was st- it was still quite a little bit surreal because obviously they, they they that was on the cusp of them being being you know that really big, big. massive breakthrough. Yeah. So um, yeah, yeah. And so we and we got I remember we got given a, a sort of platinum disc for for everything was go, and it was proudly sat on the wall of our studio. It was just a little tiny studio in a back street in Cardiff. So. It was. Uh, hmm. I'm sure you've read all James's stories about sort of coming back to the studio past all, all the hookers and you know sort yeah, of sex workers, <laughs> and uh, uh, and um, yeah, it was it was a pretty seedy part of town and like a perfect holy bible part of town, really. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So um, so that was kind of my early involvement, and and then it was just like ten years from then, really. So they so what was I was just kind of old in the studio. Then a couple of sessions happened when they started doing. This is my truth. Um, we started. I started doing. I started engineering and doing demos with James for that record. So, we so that's the thing. Is so, sorry to interrupt, but you've worked in like numerous capacities, capacities with them. Whether it's a touring musician, a musician that has been on a couple of their records, you're producing or yeah. you're engineering. Hmm. Obviously, Steve Lucas and I, we all we all know what a an engineer and a producer is we all know yeah, but, sure sure but for the people listening to the podcast who <laughs> who maybe don't and again we do yeah what is like an engineer what is the role of a music producer and again we know yeah i know you know um well it, i mean the engineer looks te- looks after the technical side of it you're sort of pushing faders around you're actually do- okay. physically responsible for the recording the technical side of the recording Mic placement. The producer like has a, has an overview of the whole project. So you you look you look after budgets. You you make musical decisions. You make song arrangements decisions. You you basically you you're like the, you're like the you're like the producer and director in a film. You have the kind of like the ultimate right. kind of uh, sort of say on the project. With the Mannix, is very different. That producer, the role of producer with them tends to be as a sounding board for James. And for, and, for, and for Nick and Sean as well, but very much for James. So James can throw ideas at you and you can give him kind of pushback because 
Mm. Really, they're a band that could produce themselves because you know he's he, James is a phenomenal musician. So you, it's a very different dynamic when uh, and um, so production with them is kind of it's an extension of engineering where you are kind of like but you're the sounding board for 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 what he what, wants to do. What as is well. it like? What is it like pushing? back or saying no to James Team Bradfield that sounds like a, <laughs> a very stressful um, experience it depends on who you are it's like I I was a bit luckier because there's a lot of ridicule that goes on on Manic Sessions there's a lot of piss taking it's a lot it's, I've heard it's that, quite yeah. a sort of it's quite a a, a sort of um, can be quite stressful but also can be a lot of fun and very mm. ed- educational I, I got I got it a lot better than Dave Ringer got it poor old Dave was just you know he he really had to sort of you know you'd have to ask Dave about it because it would be an interesting to get his take on it but you know he and he's <laughs> you know I, I, compared to the amount of work Dave's done with the band you know I'm I've done only a fraction of the work that he's done so he has a lot of longer sort of experience with them but but for me because I was always a bit older than them it was never quite as aggressive and quite uh, but uh, you know you you learn to say to challenge James on things but it's um you know you you choose your words wisely <laughs> Right, yeah. <laughs> um, that must be so weird because essentially, you know, they're there to record their album, they're, they're, you know, with their vision, and then the producer's role is to essentially say, "How about do this instead? You know, try something yeah. different." It yeah. must be so strange to push back against that instead to, of just be like, "Do but, what you want." But to be fair, they pick producers based on their their knowledge of what they've done. I mean, my mm. my my role was kind of strange because I kind of fell into it because. Literally, I was the guy around at the studio all the time. So, like when they were doing the "This Is My Truth" demos, we were they they were they 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 were we were doing some of those while the album recording was going on. So they'd be in in France with Mike Hedges, and they came, and they came back, and we started just working on. They started playing um, "You Stole the Sun," and it's like, oh, we really like. We think this version this it sounded better than we had it going in the studio. So we ended up doing a new version of the song, which is the version that's the single. I was going to say, you're credited wow. with the uh, the drum engineering and, and mixing. Yeah, so, we, so we, we recorded, like, initial, like, the, so they kept the drums and a few, I think a few other bits and bobs, and then Mike finished the record off back in France. So so I kind of fell into that by accident, and then then, then some B-sides and stuff for that record. So so that was the kind of first actual recording role, the, the demos and that I did with James and... The full band recordings that ended up being uh, "You Stole the Sun" and um, "I'm Not Working," I think was the other one. So okay. those those, those are made... two very different uh, vibes. Very different, yeah. <laughs> and and Big yeah. Noise had a particularly fine drum sound, and I think they they always liked it. The um, "Suicide Is Painless" was recorded in that studio, and it's got this other strange angular drum room that was uh, in the eaves of a building. So okay. it, wow. and and, it was, and, it, and there was a floating floor, so the drums always sounded great in there. So and they they were very fond of the sound of that room. So drums often got done there. They ended up on you know other, other, you know they recorded drums there. They ended up on other sessions. So so yeah. So I've probably gone a bit of a roundabout way about it, but it is it, it, the production process with them is quite different because of James's kind of you know they have a very strong vision before you start, and they give you a lot of descriptions about what they want um you know james will come in with a whole pile of cds and you sit there and listen to music for ages or or nick will give you mm-hmm. kind of like a uh, sort of um a, a vision for the whole you know a manifesto for the whole record like 
Sure, with, and it's all in life, pictures and scrolls. With lifeblood, yeah. yeah. It was like, you know, this Manifesto energy, is uh, definitely the word, isn't it? <laughs> it is, it is. <laughs> Whenever we've talked about them, it always seems to be manifesto comes up when we're talking about lyrics and things like that with Manix. Yeah. And, and, this and, is the manifesto. And they and they work like nobody else because, you know, it's st- most songs, I'd say pretty much all the songs start with a lyric. So Nick mm. will come in and we'd have this beautiful piece of card that's all kind of... It'll be the lyrics of the song, but with like press cuttings and like pictures and things he's drawn. And it's like, it gives you a real visual representation of what the song's about. And then James starts writing the music and it's, it's a really uh, it's unusual way of working. And, um, and they're real works of art, these, these, these pieces of cardboard. I, I don't know whether he still does yeah. it, but it, 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 was a, it was a fascinating kind of thing to, thing to watch. And uh, I'd yeah. love to see that. That'd be amazing. So there's been done... reproductions of them over the years. Like there's a postcards from a young man box set that recreates sort of like a Nicky Wire style notebook that is kind of one of my prized possessions. But it yeah. is. I was about to say, Adam much. definitely owns that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, if you, and, and there's always lots of his Polaroids on there as well. I remember seeing Polaroids yeah. around. Like, cause he's we've released used, a whole um, book of his Polaroids, hasn't he? He has. And when, yeah. when we did. Um... Again, I have that. You've got everything. Have you got? Have you, have you got like? Are you com- are you a completist? Have you got like everything? Uh, do you know what? P- part of the impetus for doing this podcast was that I had kind of fallen out of love with the band a little bit. So uh, the question, "Do you love us?" is more to myself than to anybody. I wanted to see what it was that got me obsessed with the Manics in the first place. So I was a completist for about for a good number of years in the middle, but I'm not anymore. And now this podcast has made me go back and look for things on eBay and sort right, of start yeah. compl- <laughs> starting trying to retroactively complete again. Yeah. And we're basically... Yeah, Adam's two obsessions. It's Manix memorabilia and X-Files trading cards at the moment, isn't it, Adam? Is that right? cards, yeah. <laughs> and we're basically now entering the window, aren't we, Adam, where this is where you were listening to Manix new. Lifeblood is the first so album. Lifeblood onwards is when you yeah. were a fan at the point of release, as opposed to going back and listening to them. Pretty much, yeah. It came out so, just what, as I was beginning to get into the Manics. Was that 2005, Lifeblood? 2004? It was... 2004. Yeah, man. You guys are young. But very late 2004. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was I was, uh, yes. I was, was 15, Greg, when I, when, I, um, when Lifeblood came out. Yeah. Um, but right. I was probably about 14 when I got into uh, the Manics. Anyway, we're not here to talk about me, really. Um, <laughs> you wouldn't think that listening to us. I was just about to go into what, uh, find out the whole X Files trading cards thing. I was quite fascinated by that. Is, is, oh, he's just a big nerd. Is, is that some sort of weird Gillian Anderson kind of like fixation, or is it just yes the and no, X-Files? Greg? Yes and no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just love the X Files, and um, I recently uh, I used to have them when I was uh, a child, like a few, and then yeah. you know you have to put aside childish things uh, and become an adult <laughs> and then i and then recently i've been thinking do you do you have to do that and i've been like rebuying a lot of them uh because they make me happy i had i had a big so, old breakdown greg and also right. how important's rent i mean really is rent that important it's not that important <laughs> They can't right. when Adam sent me a link Adam sent me an eBay link and he wasn't he went should I and it was like a grand for a card I was like please please don't yeah. well it is signed by both David Coveney and Gillian Anderson right it, it is yeah. it's actually good to regress and, and, mm. and review it's like it's it's really it's been quite strange like over over lockdown I think because because New Zealand came out of lockdown so much earlier than 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 the UK, yeah. especially especially Wales, I ended up doing quite quite a. It's because they're a better country. 
They've just well, they've just nailed it so so perfectly. We we do have you know a phenomenal prime minister who like who knows her shit. Oh yeah, you know, and, uh, and and it's but, such a joy to watch her. <laughs> it is, but at the moment it's frustrating because there's an election campaign on, and there's lots of dirty politics going on, and it's like yeah. you know there, there's a lot of old white men who really just like being told to do by a, by an intelligent brilliant young woman you know that sounds familiar it's, sounds it's, familiar. yeah so it's yeah. but it is it is i look i look at britain and i'm like i probably did the right thing to move here certainly at the moment <laughs> yeah because we literally we can go about our lives as normal yes the borders are closed and there's lots of um, quarantine restrictions but you can go to rugby games you can go to concerts you can there's no social distancing there's no face mask it's like, so literally like oh. i just went down to the cafe bought a coffee and just hang at this people that Full of strangers, and you don't you don't feel anything about it because there's no community transfer. So it is we are in a luxurious position, really. Remember yeah. when that wasn't a concern? Going down to the coffee shop is yeah. now like I went I went down to the coffee shop. Yeah, but don't you find I just miss live music? Yeah, it's going to a gig. It's amazing to, to sort of like yeah. be and because everyone's been starved of it. Now our lockdown was like five weeks, and it was really really tight. You couldn't you had to you stayed had to stay really close to home. Um, uh, but it but it worked. I mean, they, they it, it did mm. it did the job, and ev- everybody bought into it. Um, even if they didn't agree, there was no, there was never a face mask requirement. So there's ne- we never had this kind of face mask pushback thing. So yeah, it's yeah. um it's it's I'm really lucky, and uh, you know I, I'm getting on a flight today, and there's no there's no restrictions on the flight. You just get on, and you, yeah, and just it's uh, anyway. I digress. I'm so jealous. I'm so <laughs> jealous. Sorry, the, pla- yeah. the yeah, yeah, playing cards, flights. Quarantine. Where were we? Oh yeah, right. Yeah. Live, so we, live music. We, that'll be nice. Oh yeah, Manic Street Preachers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. we were talking about um, uh, the the band coming in with a very sort of um, pre-fixed idea of what they would like the record to achieve or sound like. Um, yeah. And you worked on a few of the tracks for Know Your Enemy, which yeah. to me very much feels like a record, or it, it comes across the record that they were kind of finding their way through as they did it. Or if I got that completely wrong, is is how much of that is studio experimentation versus sort of that that sonic blueprint? Yeah, I mean, Know Your Enemy was it was a strange one for me because it was the first it was for me it was the first time I'd had full production credits on on a Manix album, right? So I was involved in it, but I wasn't really because they 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 went to El Cortijo, it's a studio in Spain, with Dave yes. Ringer to do that record. Um, a great. I, I've done some sessions there myself. It's a really great studio. It's out in the hills, overlooking the Atlas Mountains. You've got a swimming pool. There's a great chef there. It's a really Ooh, great getaway great. studio. So although the album sounds quite raw and kind of, it's got that raw punky element. The environment it was mm. recorded in it was actually very quite luxurious. So it's. Um, <laughs> but the work that I did on the album, like Freedom of Speech, was it was myself and James. It, by which time. By the, the time the album happened, Big Noise had closed down because it was re, it was bought by the Cardiff Bay Redevelopment Corporation, and the, as the whole area was redeveloped, so we were compensated for the for the for the loss of the business. So we had an office the other side of town in Cardiff, and we had some of the recording gear in a little room downstairs. So, um, so me and James went in, and it was crazy because he, I don't know if you if you listen to the track. The acoustic guitar sounds like it's got this really lo-fi kind of quality. Mm. And basically what he did, he bought a, he bought a, like a cassette machine, a little portable cassette machine in, and recorded the acoustic guitar into the microphone on the cassette machine. Whilst, whilst I gave him like a click track in, in his ear. So he recorded the whole song <laughs> through. And then, then we, just, we, just, we just transferred the cassette. We were still recording on tape at this time. Recorded 
just transferred the the, the the acoustic guitar track onto onto tape, and then did some a lot of overdubs on the song, like the, the, the some of the synths and the vocal, and and then uh, then uh, who, then I think Dave might have done some additional. I know David Holmes did some additional work on it, and Kevin yeah. Shields from My Bloody Valentine played guitar on it as well. And um, and I think it was the whole song was a kind of amalgam of all these different things. So so my role was kind of a little bit more um, sort of you know just bits and pieces for that really. You know it was only it was only when we got into Lifeblood that I started having and all the demos for Lifeblood that I started really doing a lot more work with them as far as like being being there from sort of scratch apart from a few B sides and everything. So it was right. Um, so it was, it was it was hard to know you know and I was actually sharing a flat with James at the time. So, oh. so I was, you know, I, I, I was, well, yeah, I was kind of looking after a play, a, a, his flat in Cardiff. And um, so we'd often sit around and talk about, about music and sit around and smoke, smoke Marlboro Lights and, you know, sort of <laughs> watch Nigella Lawson cooking shows. You know? Sure, sure. Yeah, it was quite surreal. I love that. It was quite... The rock and roll lifestyle. You, you yeah. were talking about regressing. <laughs> that sounds uh, exactly like that sort of student yeah, lifestyle. it was quite a surreal time. And, um, but, you know, it's, it, it, I don't, you know, wherever... I, I mean, I don't want to speak sort of, you know, for I, for all their motivations, but it always feels like every album they make, they have a a real clear idea of what they want it to be, you know, mm. and they're and they're very good at describing what they want that to be, and and mm. uh, you know, I you should you should definitely speak to Dave Ringer because Dave's got lots of great stories, and um, we would love he, to speak he, to Dave Ringer. Yes, yeah. so he's you know, he could give you a better idea on the sort of um, on the sonic motivation behind know your enemy you know because it, it is it is quite an eclectic bunch of songs it's a weird album that's yeah. a weird album that, that i love very much <laughs> it's, it's one thing we've certainly noted doing this podcast obviously us coming me and lucas listening to it from the beginning and you were saying how they got a clear vision for each album but whether you like an album or not from the manics as you go along you can't disagree that every single one sounds different and they've got a different vision for each album yeah and that's one thing i've been so impressed with it's that whether I've enjoyed it or not, at least I'm like, this is at least like it's, it's new, isn't it? Something new, and, and yeah. That's, yeah, and that's how great. Steve. That's how I decimated you eleven to four on being able to recognise which albums B sides were from, right? Yes, you did. You did because win. Because there's a Lucas. very, very clear good. sound to each album, and it was okay, very clear guys. to anyone with half okay, a brain. Guys. Okay, yeah. guys. <laughs> I, I, I did. I did quite enjoy the 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 the, the sort of the lip, the uh, lipstick traces sweepstakes you had going on. It was. Uh, yeah. yeah, it was like. And you made you made some really really sort of uh, broad assumptions about some of the things. It was quite amusing <laughs> knowing some of the backstories to the to, to it. It was like, oh, that's an interesting sort of take on that. It's totally and, total. Yeah. Did you say you produced Mister Carbohydrate as well? No, Greg? no. But that the very first thing I ever did as far as playing on a Manix record was I played percussion on Mister Carbohydrate and Dead Trees and Traffic Islands when Alex Silver was in. Rick- because they they were done between when were they when were those songs done they were because they were done as B sides for everything everything was go I think and Alex Silver came in who used to be the house engineer at Soundspace that's with and that's how he did the Holy Bible blah 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 right. and um, and Alex came in and said do you want to come and play some percussion on these tracks so I just went in and like wow I'm playing some stuff on a Manic's track not knowing that several years later I end up being on the road with them for two years playing percussion which is yeah. Not also not being a percussionist, which was quite, yeah. That's not you know. I just kind of fell into that. Like as with everything with the manics, I kind of fell into it almost accidentally, because like like the percussion thing mm-hmm. happened with because I 
they did the Carning Homecoming show at St. David's Hall. Carning were doing these series of homecoming shows for bands going back to their hometown and doing gigs. And it was like an acoustic set and an, an electric set. And so they asked if I'd play percussion on the acoustic set at St. David, St. David's Hall. So it was like, you know, string players, piano, uh, Nick Naismith on piano. I was playing percussion and marimbas and stuff. And, um, and then whilst... We were in soundcheck. Nick turned around and goes, "Oh, this looks this is this looks fun. Do you want to come on the Greatest Hits tour next week?" Yeah, <laughs> and I'm like, "You fancy that, Greg?" Okay, so, <laughs> I, but I was literally, I was literally you know, in, in, had a load of recording sessions on, so I I phoned up, cancelled everything. And they're like, "There's no rehearsals. There's a production rehearsal in Dublin. Here's 36 songs to learn. Learn them and come to rehearsals." So the production rehearsal. So I literally had like crib sheets all over the. You know, and I, I was sitting in a hotel room with headphones on into the early hours of the morning, just sketching out what the hell I was going to do. And then, like, we, we have one run through of the set, and then the next night we're playing at the point in Dublin. I think the night after we're in the NEC in Birmingham or Wembley or something. So it was it was all a little bit intimidating. Jeez. And also, you I'm stressed listening to that. <laughs> you're also playing, you know, all there. You know, so we learned 36 songs so it was like so we'd rotate the set every night and it was uh, every iconic manic songs to that debt to that date we were yeah. playing you know so it's like and, and 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 the the excitement of like i remember uh, the first night in dublin i can't remember because i was so utterly shit scared but, um, <laughs> but when we got when we got to birmingham or when i can't remember what the second date was and i remember like starting the set with motorcycle and it was, and then the crowd singing back, and I'm like, "Holy shit, this is quite incredible!" You know, it's like you you yeah. felt like almost like an out of body experience, and uh, which they were obviously used to. But for me, it was just like this is just insane. God, that you sounds know? amazing. There's yeah. no build up yeah. to it as well. And if they went through years of slowly getting going through all these different sized venues playing these songs. Whereas for you, it's just, well, go and play the biggest ones. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we, we, we did the, um, you know, I was, I was listening to your, to your podcast talk about, oh you know, sort of, because obviously it's a transition, you know, there was that transition from like, you know, Clash to be headlined to second on the bill. There yeah. was like, you know, mm. but there was still, and there was, you know, there was obviously, a, you know, a revision in sort of after Know Your Enemy. It was like, you know, that, so they didn't, I don't think they didn't tour that album, I think. So the yeah. greatest hits tour was the first tour after you know really kind of back on the horse, but you know they were they were big venues and they were you know we were playing you know Wembley Arena and we were playing um, the was it the NEC or whatever the Nine X or whatever it is it, it, they've renamed these venues so much I don't know but that the big venue in Manchester and <laughs> you know, the MEN, it's really and and it'll and, be over uh, O two it'll be in O two everything's in O two in O two yeah, yeah. and yeah. the SEC <laughs> in Glasgow which was probably the best night of the tour and Nick wore this kind of thing that looked made him look like Big Bird, this enormous kind of like feathery <laughs> kind of... Unbelievable. Yeah, and um, so it was... it was, And I remember when the tour finished, walking around Roth Park in Cardiff and thinking, did that just happen? That was... Because that yeah. was just a deeply surreal thing to happen. I just I was kind of plucked out of doing a load of other things and all of a sudden you're... Because I hadn't toured since... I used to tour a lot as a musician back in the late 80s and do a lot of touring around, you know, around the world with, as, as a drummer. And uh, to be back on the road in my kind of forties, playing, doing that sort mm. of stuff, and and then yeah. the following year doing Glastonbury and doing, um, you know, sort of uh, Witness Festival as it was in Ireland. Pyramid stage at Glastonbury, I just, I can't even imagine the pyramid stage at Glastonbury must have been very surreal. 
It was. <laughs> it was also... I mean, it was a really interesting night because um, I think Fee, the band Feeder were on before us. Okay. And I used to be in a band with Grant Nicholas back in, in, in the late 80s. And, uh, and we, was just, we, were, we were... Before we went on stage, we were kind of reminiscing. It's like, how the hell did we end up here? You know, it's sort of like... You kind of like... The things yeah. you dream of as a young musician, you kind of like... And, and here we are. And it's like we're both playing on the same stage. Minus yeah. mullets this time. Yeah, my mullet, my mullet had gone. But I remember... Because... Like, <laughs> I remember Nick saying before, are we, um, we're going to um, wear camo or wear kind of dark green, you know, that sort of yeah. you know, army colours for the thing. So I was like, shit, i got to get a shirt. And I went and I bought they a shirt. They love springing stuff on you, don't they? They do. <laughs> and I bought this shirt, but made the mistake of not trying it on before I, <laughs> before I did it. And of course, I put it on. And it's like the thing, I barely fitted and the, like, the, the buttons are straining like, <laughs> like a ship trying to like sort of, you know, an anchor of a ship trying to get away from the docks kind of thing. And, uh, and so my whole set was like, I was trying to enjoy it, but, mem- but thinking if I don't hold my stomach in, my shirt's going to burst open and it's going to be like, it's going to be like the full Monty or something. It'll just be. Well, that could have been <laughs> yeah. like the big finale, Greg. Yeah, <laughs> I remember Nick finding that truly hilarious. That the, the, the suffering I was going through because of this shit, this shit. <laughs> but apart from that, it was amazing, and uh, yeah, it was just um, and it was a weird set. I think you were, you mentioned it in your previous podcast about it was a weird combination of you know songs that didn't make lifeblood beasts because it was kind of around the lipstick traces. Yeah, so time. they played like covers, and they played uh, they played we, Judge Yourself. Did we do skinheads? Skinheads will take the skinheads yeah. rolling. Yeah, 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 and everything and will be, which is a B side yeah. from the Lifeblood uh, with Andy yeah. from from uh, Groove Armada playing trombone. Yeah. Did you did you record everything will be with the Mannix? Is I did something you I produced. Did. It was it, it was one of the Lifeblood session songs. And is that Sean playing the trumpet on it? I guess it must have been. Yeah. So if, what if I've heard, tr- if it's trumpet, it's usually on in that period. If it's trumpet, it's usually Sean. Okay, well, I, I've heard something about those sessions. You might be able to tell me whether it's true or not. Is that you had heard the track without the trumpet, and then you said, "This needs more trumpet," and Sean got confused and thought that you meant him, and so he wrote a trumpet part for it. Is that is that true? <laughs> I have no recollection of that whatsoever. Okay, so we'll it put it down as true. true. We'll put it down it as could, true for now. It could be true. It's it, it's like. Okay. See, so, I mean, so, so the, I think that should be confirmed. That's true. So again, lifeblood was not. It was not meant to be me. So well, it that's was, what I was going to ask. Is like, what is it yeah. about their vision for lifeblood where they went? We need Greg Haver. Like, what is it about your production style that well, they? they I, I was sort of going to ask without without going into it too much because because we haven't said what we. We haven't done Lifeblood yet. Is what yeah. did they go into Lifeblood? What was their sort of pitch before Lifeblood? Because it definitely has a okay. sound. Right. So, so here's the, here here in lies the tale. All right. Mm. So we were on tour doing, and I think we were about to play. I think we were heading over to. Oh, that's it. We did. The, we did the Move Festival. That was Old Trafford Cricket Ground. Yeah. And they were. Th- Three over three nights, and the Manx headlined the first night. I think REM did the second night, and it was, it was that was really cool because I love cricket and playing at Old Trafford. Every time I drive my wife crazy, with every time there's a cricket game on, I've played there because it's like, <laughs> yeah. and she's like, Yes, I know the story. I don't know. Anyway, so we were on the way to the fest, to the, 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 the festival, and and Nick Naismith, me and Nick would often travel together, Nick, Nick the keyboard player, and um, 
the Lord, the famous Lord, who was um, yeah, he's uh, we'd we'd often be in you know, the same car, and he said, oh, I think I think the guys are going to do um, go to New York and work with Tony Visconti on on Lifeblood, and I thought, oh, so, you know, and there was a bit of a Bowie connection because we used to come to on stage to is this speed of speed of love speed of speed of the life. Bowie song and speed of life that's it yeah we used to come on stage to that during the greatest hits tour and i know there'd been kind of like a bit of a kind of uh, a band love in with kind of that that berlin period bowie thing yeah yeah, yeah. so it's yeah. like so yeah tony visconti he did those records let's go to new york and work with tony and i'm like oh, that's a good idea you know just i, I just because i never yeah. presume you never presume that that you're going to be doing anything you when they ask it's great but you kind of presume it's probably not going to happen so so it's oh great so that's that's really good and and i so the tour finished and I, um, I, I was over in New Zealand working on, um, oh, that's, that, I go back at the stage. We started doing demos for that album. So, um, and because they'd given me this, uh, this kind of brief of this elegiac pop thing, but also referring back to like some, some, some of the sort of like, you know, bands like a certain ratio and, you know, a lot of those kind of like eighties kind of crossover yeah. post punk things, but also Berlin period Bowie sort of uh, lodger and and you know that, that, that those of station to station those kind of period records so i'm a massive bowie fan so i knew all those records and i knew how what the sounds were and i i knew I thought well, i can do that so so for the for the demos i started delving into my how can i be a bit like tony visconti sort of school of production and just stealing lots of Tony Visconti ideas from those records. <laughs> oh, if you're going to steal from anyone, steal from Tony Visconti. Well, exactly. You know, he's, yeah. he was, if I wouldn't be a producer if it wasn't for Tony Visconti, because, you know, he made those records that I loved when I was younger. And so, so the band go over to New York and they started working with Tony. So I'm in New Zealand recording an album and James phones me up and says, do you want to come to New York and hang out with Tony Visconti for a couple of days and play some percussion on the record? And springing it on you like, again. It's all very I'm short like, notice with the manager. Yeah, it's always it was literally so. So I think I'm like to hang out with Visconti. I can ask him all those nerdy fanboy questions. <laughs> I am to Tony Visconti what you are to X Files trading cards. Right? So <laughs> okay. so this is great. So I, I I jumped on a flight, flew to New York, and um, spent a few days in with Visconti, basically. Picking his brains about records, doing some playing on, on, on I think, um, Cardiff Afterlife and um, what other songs did you do on, on, on Lifeblood? You probably know better than me. Um, Emily? Uh, Sol- Solitude Sometimes Is. Yeah, and Emily. Um, I think those are the three that those he's are the three? with. Yeah. And um, so I did some playing on those, on those tracks and, and then went out for dinner for, and, and sort of drinking and, and a dinner with James and, uh, and he was like, are they, are they done a version of Empty Souls as well? And and James was like, we really like the demo version of Empty Souls. So can you, um, do you fancy doing some more, some recording on the, some recording some songs for the album? I'm like, oh yeah, I'd love to. That'd be, you know, that'd be great. So, you know, I think they felt that as, you know, as a producer, you, you have a sound for a certain period and you kind of evolve and you move on. Mm. And like, I think, you know, Tony, had, it was 30 years since Tony had done those Bowie records. So obviously his his production techniques and styles had moved on, whereas I was just basically ripping off Tony Visconti stuff. <laughs> so, I, so, my, so so what I was doing was probably closer to what they, they were trying to achieve. 
Right. So, okay. so, so, so I kind of fell into Lifeblood, and it was, um, and it's such a weird record in the fact that, you know, they wanted to get away from like so uh, for it being a big guitar record. So, a oh, lot yeah, that, of the, that, yeah, yeah. a lot of the sounds on there that you think are keyboards are all guitars. So we did a lot of work, kind of doing like wow. corrupting I guitar have, sounds and down. I had that written down. <laughs> well done, Adam. Congratulations, <laughs> Adam. I ask if a lot of the synth sounds were like heavily processed guitars. I love they that are, shit. That, yeah. that stuff is so interesting yeah. to me. And actually, that, that forged my production style for the next like 15 years. I still do a lot of that stuff wow. now. It's evolved to this extreme measure now where what was three or four guitar pedals is now 15 guitar pedals, you know? Oh, but, but the, 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 the root of, the, of those... Um, of those of of that style came making that record and trying to find different ways to do things and um it was it was yeah it was i can't say it was not a stressful record is that double negative it was quite a stressful record to make yeah. because you know it was just trying i, I think it was quite a, a difficult point in their career quite transitional because i know you guys have talked about kind of like b-sides and songs preempting what the next record's going to be and there then, is there is like no it, real preemption for Lifeblood apart from well, there by the grace. Well, I think of God. I think um, yeah, Grace of God is is a classic yeah. pre you know because we were we were at Mono Valley doing um, work are we working on demos for the greatest hits and Grace of God came out of those essentially the, the Grace of God is the, the bulk of it is the demo from that myself and James did it between one and four in the morning at Mono Valley. Yeah. Um, wow. Because forever delayed was meant to be on forever delayed. That yeah. would make sense. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> so it ended up being it ended up being Grace of God and Daughter of the River, and and um, yeah. So it was, but for me, that was my first top ten hit was Grace of God, and it was like, and that probably that song changed my career more than anything else because you be you you overnight become a recognized record producer, you know, and it's really right. Yeah. So that was. But that, but sonically, that was kind of the transition into Lifeblood, that more electronic approach to sort and of. And like, was that a like a conscious reaction to Know Your Enemy, or was that kind of a part of their constant wanting to move on? Because I know Know Your Enemy wasn't. It, it was it was a divisive record, as is Lifeblood, actually. But yeah, I mean, I mean, one of the reasons I thought when Neil met talked about your podcast, I thought maybe after fifteen years, I should have my say on Lifeblood. Because I've never really, I, I've never, you know, I, I've, I've always been quite, obviously, you know, I've fought its corner over the years and it's, um, but it is divisive and I just felt that maybe I should, you know, enough time has passed now where I should maybe have my, you know, give my opinion on it because it's, it is such a divisive record and, but I, you know, it my is, argument it's, it's would be. It split the fan base right yeah, down, right down there. But my argument would be, it's like, if, if you can't, experiment as a band that's had a 30-year career what's yeah. the point mm, yeah you know, it's, it's like do you just make the same record over and over again because it's successful or do you or, you, or you, if you look at you look back at bands who are have really long careers you know there's always a few like weird albums in that in that in that selection and it's you've got to do that just to progress and and make, even if lifeblood was a um a way to to for them to realize that we need to go back to our kind of like you know uh, our sort of more sort of rock roots you know right. and uh, and yeah. uh, and send away the tigers is the reaction to lifeblood i don't think they would have yeah. been a send away the tigers if there wasn't a lifeblood and and certainly that 
that desire for them to do solo albums after Lifeblood gave them the breathing space to re- to find what they really wanted to do as musicians. And, you know, it's, uh, and, and, and I think that, I think their career has longevity. And I, and I think that transition period was a really big part of being able to, you know, find out where, you know, where, where their strengths were and what they really wanted to do. So does that mean that, that Lifeblood occurs at a time when they weren't really sure they wanted to be as musicians? I think, you know, I think post Know Your Enemy, because if you think you, you have, you know, you have uh, Everything Must Go and This Is My Truth. I mean, This Is My Truth sold over a million records in Wales. There's only three and a half million people in Wales. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, that's, that's insane if you think about it. That's yeah. like every household in Wales has a copy of, 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 of This Is My Truth. You know, there's... Where do you go from there, really? You know, it's like, do you just make another This Is My Truth or do you like, fuck it, I'll do Know Your Enemy and I'll just, I'll challenge people, you know? That's and what I like, love about yeah. that record is it is the yeah. definition of a band going just, you know what, fuck it. Yeah, yeah. Fuck they really, it, some they, disco. They really did, I mean, yeah, they really did just say fuck it with that one, didn't they? Yeah. And it's There's a straight quote, down I, the middle. I mean, I don't know if I should tell you this, but I, I think I think it's a really... um really in, interesting insight into the into the band and the, and the and the second half of their career I, I i played i played a lot of shows with them in in japan and um at, at, that was at the end of the towards the end of the greatest hits tour and uh i i, I remember a conversation with james and one of the crew where he said you know we've kind of I've, we've reached the top of the mountain i just want to come down gracefully interesting and it was like (laughs) i said that's a really interesting insight because it's like yeah it's like you have so much success it's like where do you go from there you know do you yeah you know do you make musical decisions are going to satisfy you as a musician and you know or do you just keep trying to chase more success and i think you know the the next few out you know know your enemy and lifeblood were really transitional records into like the second half of their career and um you have to transition somehow and i think it's uh you know, and that's that's also it's very self-aware because you know it's pretty much every band at some point will hit the peak and then will just gradually be less massive just because time time goes on. It's like the Spinal Tap and quote to, about, about about sort of you know, our audience have become they haven't got smaller just become more selective. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and then you've got those bands that just forever try and just release the same thing over and over again and well into their sixties. Yeah, and just keep on going and uh, just kind of crap and you don't do, you don't do a year of podcasts about those bands you know there is well, so exactly. much to talk about with the manics you know and, and there's so much yeah. mystery surrounding them you know i'm not going to spill all the beans here today because it's like you know it's like a lot of my uh, my conversations with them uh, you know they will stay private and they're sort of you know they're course, friends and you know and without them i owe my career to them without them i'd at least 50 percent of the work i get are, fr- are from bands who love them you know so it's mm. like it's it, without them, I wouldn't have a career. I probably wouldn't be living in New Zealand. I wouldn't have I've met my wife here because I got you know I got a lot of work here based on the work I'd done with them. So you know I owe them a lot. But you know it is interesting to kind of um, you know kind of look back fifteen years previously when you've got some distance from it and try and find out why things happened and you know. It's like because literally, the, I think the last session we did were, were that I did with them would have been the some of the B sides for um, "Send Away the Tigers," like um, mm. "Anorexic Rodan" and some of those tracks, you know. Which, which I think some of my favorite things I ever did with them, 
because uh, okay. um, you could see they were back on the up again because you know there was because the, send away the tigers was a re, you know it was a really transitional record and a, a record back to a lot ones a lot of what the fans wanted to hear yeah. anthemic rock yeah yeah. Of, yeah yeah very much yeah. a sort of it, it's it's the back to basics record that they thought know your enemy would be but it sort of wasn't does that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You guys are really teasing like <laughs> these two albums of what they're going to be like. Because for me, this is a complete. Yeah, mystery. you've got no idea. Yeah, yeah. Have you not? So I'm to, like, what's have gonna... you not listened to Lifeblood, Lucas? I've listened to Lifeblood extensively, and I'm having to really bite my tongue because I've yet to tell yeah. Adam and Steve a single opinion yeah. about what I think of it, and I'm trying really carefully to not. <laughs> Just chime in and talk about the album. You'll probably come up with your classic "It's a pile of shit" comment. Uh, (laughs) I I really want to talk about it. He's got (laughs) Lucas pegged. Uh, I mean, I think I've only said that. I've only said that about a little bit of the stuff they've done. What the whole of "Know Your Enemy," apart from freedom of speech. (laughs) Freedom of speech is an absolute banger. Yeah. Uh, you're obviously a man if, with more taste than I credit you for, because you know if no, I love freedom of speech. Yeah. I think it's an awesome track. Yeah, I feel like if mm. No Enemy had been those two albums that they talked about doing, you know, the double album, I wonder if I would have just liked one and not liked the other. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean that. I mean, they obviously applied that principle to like um, uh, rewind the film and Futurology. Yeah, I think. I think the idea I, probably. The experience of doing... I mean, I'm, I'm making suppositions here. I don't know this for a fact. But I would imagine that the experience of Know Your Enemy and, 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 and Should It Have Been Two Albums was the resulted in Rewind the Film and Futurology being two separate records. And, yeah. um, you know, maybe... I think... I'd, I'm sure out there in the inter- in the wilds of the internet somewhere somebody has compiled Know Your Enemy into two separate albums. I have not. Sorry, do you mean that, on though. my phone, Greg? Is His that name's Adam. He's got a glass pole. <laughs> and he's definitely done it. <laughs> so yeah, so it, it's um, I guess that's the you know, but you know, that's the beauty of a band that's got a long career is you can like you can make a decision that you can then reverse later on. So yeah, yeah. Was it? Was it obvious when you were recording Lifeblood that it would be divisive? Or was it just kind of... Like, what was the mood in, in the studio? Did you know you were releasing something that would split fans down the middle? I mean, I was too busy being chronically stressed out to even care. Right, OK. <laughs> you know, it, it was... Um, I think there was... Because the... I think... Because the original vision was to be in New York, do it with, with Tony, and... and um, so it was like... It's, it's not... I, Saying it was a salvage operation is just is way too critical. I mean, they you know they obviously entrusted what I was going to do, and but there was still I don't know. I mean, I've I've often looked back and think you know did the album get away from us? Did it kind of like um, did we just kind of go down a path and we we'd already gone so far down that path? It was like it was we couldn't turn back kind of thing. And 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 there were I mean some songs were actually written in this written towards the end of the session like Glasnost was done after a, a record company playback and um, and it was like and it was like it was there was you know it wasn't the best expe- best experience the, the the playback for the label right. and, uh, and 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 James had this riff and we kind of like and we essentially just stayed up all night and we worked on that song you know so is that try- atypical for the Manics? No, I mean. Empty Souls was a nighttime session, and that was a glorious experience because that was done as a demo. But the demo ended up as the version on the record. So it, we literally, it was. I might have recounted the story before, but it was. 
James, well, how, how we do the sessions were very much like, they were like shift work. Nick and Sean would come in and they'd from like 10 a.m. till about 5 p.m. And they would do stuff that they were doing. And then we'd go for dinner and then me and James would come back and, and often Nick Naismith um, would come back and we'd work on the, the day's ideas until like three, four in the morning. And then we'd start mm. again for the next day. You, you, they were pretty strenuous sessions and James is a really, mm. really pushes you. And, um, and, and at Empty Souls, it was literally like Sean was just about to leave and James up, like, can you put a quick drum track down for me for this song? And like literally Sean like played it through once, got in his car and him and Nick drove back home. And, you know, in my mind, his Sean's car was revving up outside, but probably it wasn't. It was just in my mind because if it had someone was <laughs> someone would have stolen it. But it's um, it was that it was that kind of last minute thing. And then we came back after dinner and recorded the whole of Empty Souls that evening. Everything, vocals, keyboards, guitars, the whole thing. So it was really instant and really a really fun evening. And everything we did on that session is on the record, including the drums that Sean played through once. You know, but there's literally like James standing in front of the drums and this acoustic guitar guy bleeding all over the drums and drum mics and everything. So it's like we had to do a bit of patching up to get it to work. But um, yeah, so that it's literally that version. And uh, and um, and now I've completely forgotten what the actual question was that you asked me. It's about about the album being divisive, which actually really surprises me. I that. You can't. You want to say? I can't talk about it. <laughs> anyway, empty uh, souls. It surprises kind of me that it's divisive. But uh, but uh, you know, the, the, a lot of the stuff that was done. Um, actually, a lot of the demo stuff ended up on the record. Like, um, really? Uh, yeah. So, because what we did was, um, we took all the recordings that we'd done over. Like to- the Tony Visconti songs, kind of stand alone. I've got. I've got verse. I've got like a. I've got the demo versions of Solitude Sometimes Is and Cardiff Afterlife. I've got, I've got recordings of the whole record, um, including the stuff that Tony did. Um, but a lot of the stuff that I did as demos with the band ended up being the stuff from the record. But we went over to Grouse Lodge in Ireland and we did, um, we, we, we did a lot of work on the songs and we, we, we um, replaced a lot of we, some of the drum tracks on. Like 1984, we redid the drums, which was... a absolute nightmare and a disaster i was and i was gonna ask about 1985 because um they it's like, a real favorite a, fa- a fan fa- i get so much i get so many emails about that song because people mm-hmm. seem to really love that so it feels like it was a, like a lost single maybe but i understand it was a bit of a nightmare in the studio and that the band occasionally teased you about how much of a mess it was in the studio. The ridicule I've got. I still get it. It still comes up now. It's like the ridicule I get over it. What because, happened, man? Why was it so complex? Well, we were recording... The, the, the band's old studio, Faster Studios, in Cardiff. It was, I'd, I'd done a lot of work in that studio because when Big Noise closed down, Faster was just down the road, or yeah. Stir Studios as it was then. So I started going there with James to do B-sides and we just go in things like, um, I see that like uh, the Daniels on Literally Traces, so songs like that and acoustic things with James and stuff. So we started using that studio more and more and all the demos for Lifeblood were done there. So we had a pretty good feel for it. So it was a great drum room. We had a pretty good feel of how it all sounded. We went to Grouse Lodge and it's like an amazing studio, but obviously it's all new and I was I was trying to find something with the drums on it and it was just it just... 
yeah, it just didn't work. And, um, okay. and cue massive ridicule from Nick and James. Sean was always always a gentleman. He would never ridicule me. And we were drummers union, so we always kind of got sure. on. And James always it said actually I had sounds a, like a mystic is... hold on Sean. So it was kind of a, you know, James would go, get Moro to do this because you've got like a mystic hold on him. I think it's because we were both drummers and we kind of like, we talked our, you know, the same language. But but I though that wasn't right. But luckily, Tom Elmhurst came in and... Did some, did a lot of extra work on the song at at mix stage and turned it into like the the brilliant track that it is now. So it almost sounds like there's follow- two drum tracks on that on that song. I think there there probably is. You'd have to ask Tom Elmhurst, but it's like so so everything on, is on there apart from Tom went for a much simpler approach to the drums and uh, it was it, and it, and it really worked and it did sound really good. I think cause, and we'd been on that record for a year and a half. I think. And uh, in various forms, so mm. to have Tom Elmer's come in because he was it was it was now he's at one of the world's most successful mix engineers. But then he was like the band took a bit of a punt on him because he I think he'd done maybe Black Cherry or something for, for Gold Frap, and I think there was some parallels between the electronic approach for Lifeblood and and thought Tom would be a good you know and they and they always have a different mix engineer to recording engineers, so that was always going to be the case that someone else is going to mix it. But Tom kind of brought another like a real fresh approach to it. So some of like, like Richard, Richard Nixon and 1984, what he did to those tracks kind of really made the difference and, and kind of added another, like another level of kind of, of sort of, yeah, a really fresh approach and, and, and really brought the best out of those songs. I was going to ask about the love of Richard Nixon, actually, because I've heard Nikki say that it was supposed to be kind of like an almost, well, or, or that it started as, an REM-esque sort of college rock song that yeah. then sort of morphed into this sort of electro-pop 80s kind of vibe. How, how does that happen? How does one go from like a guitar-based college rock to, a, to an electro vibe? Is that felt out in the studio? Yeah, you just kind of throw stuff at it and see what happens. But they, they were maybe less so on Lifeblood, but they were always a band that would go in and play together, you know, because right. they were never sort of like, you know, let's... As I was saying that, some of the B-sides would often be like, you'd build them up, you know, you'd put an acoustic guitar down and just start adding things to it. But often, you know, a lot of those days when the whole band were in, they would just play, you know? And um, I'd have to go back and listen to earlier versions of, of, of Nixon to see... What it was, I remember using. Oh, like, you can always send them to me, and I'll listen to them, Greg. I don't mind doing that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of like you know, this sort of yeah. There are there, there are some things I will not you know that, that aren't meant to be out in the world. Yeah, but okay. I'd be interested. Yeah. In, interestingly, a lot of those recordings do 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 appear like on the on the like 20th anniversary. Like all the demos we did for this is my truth, or a lot of them ended up on the reissue 20th anniversary reissue, because I literally used to run a dat run a dat machine during during rehearsals. Right. So I had like twenty versions of all the songs, you know, and I sent them all to Nick, or like the best versions to Nick, and the, and, the, and they used them on the um on, on the reissue. But there's lots of versions of stuff lying around, and so you'd have to sort of trace the um the sort of the genesis of the idea back. But uh, I can't remember it ever sounding like REM. Okay, did, maybe did, that's just Nick, something that Nicky says. Didn't Nick hate REM? I don't know, was, or am I imagining that? He has that quote about Michael Stipe. But, that's, uh, the, that's it, yeah. But they've yeah. since yeah. said that he loves REM and counts them as an influence. Just, they have a very right, difficult right. relationship with REM. REM, my yes. favourite band. Um, right. So, 
yeah very difficult uh, relationship um so so, so it was, again it was like as 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 a lot of my involvement with the band something starts as one thing and i'm conveniently sit i'm conveniently there to try and sort of like you know give them a second option which i, right. I, I, I yeah you know so maybe i'm putting myself down by saying i was the second option guy all the time but I, i'll take it you know I'm sort of, <laughs> yeah I mean, Love of Richard Nixon is, is a weird first single, borderline risky first single. Yeah. For, um, yeah. Like, was that always intended as, as the single? I think it was, I think, I think Rob Stringer, from, who was their A&R, who's now head of Sony, um, is, he was his choice, I think. Was and he Rob's okay? Got good, Rob's got a pretty good <laughs> track record, because bearing, bearing in mind, I did, one of you said something about Uh-oh. B-sides, B-sides being some sort of like, you know, like kind of running down the idea of B-sides. But, you know, tolerate. It oh, sounds like this, something I'd say yeah. I think and, then regret, and then regret saying yeah. when I'm called out on it in front <laughs> of the producer of that, of Sazon. <laughs> and I wanted, I wanted to shout down, down the, you know, down the radio, down the podcast. To I like, think that's an experience lots yeah. of our listeners have, Greg. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> Screaming at the because iPod. Because to- tolerate was a B-side. Yeah. If you tolerate this was done as a B side and, and Rob Stringer from Sony who chose Richard Nixon came in and said, That's the single and they're like, It's a B side. Yeah. It's like, no, it's the <laughs> single and it was their first number one. So it's like, you know, you, you you need to trust the judgment of people who've made made decisions like that. And I think and why not? It's like I mean I always felt that Empty Soul should have been the first single off the off the record. Yes, I it I always it always agree felt like the most instant one despite the trickiness of having the, the Twin Towers lyric in it, which which was always problematic, yeah. especially this was only 2004, so fairly yeah. close to 9-11. They did edit it out, though, in the end, didn't they? Yeah, but if you notice, the backing vocals sing <laughs> collapsing <laughs> towers and, uh, and, and the lead vocal does die in flowers. So... So that was that was not my doing. <laughs> I'm like, the backing yeah. vocals got a different lyric. And, uh, yeah... When you say they edited it out, is that for the single? Because that's on the version that I yeah heard, for the single right? they the edited album it. the album version got got uh, yeah, got, yeah, yeah. got collapsing like the Twin Towers and the single version's got um, like dying flowers on on there. It's right. like, obviously there was you know the powers of be thought that um, everyone was too sensitive that close to the the event to yeah. you know. But hey, you know if you're gonna be brave, be brave. It's like you know it's they. That, I'm really glad that version's on the album because yeah. There was, you know, there's always some debate of other lyrics that could be controversial. You know, it's. Um, I was, was going to say yeah. this. This is the band that made the Holy Bible. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, but you know, but yeah. even even but saying that when there was a, a lot of a pushback when the BBC when they did the Holy Bible concert from the Cardiff Castle, when the BBC wouldn't play wouldn't broadcast a lot of the songs, to the point oh, wow. where where they were forced to actually broadcast the whole gig with all the the more sort of like challenging songs in there mm. with a big disclaimer at the front because it's like you're censoring an artist's work and it's yeah, um, yeah just because you know because of sensitivity so it's like just put the warning out there and then play the whole thing you know stop pussying around you know it's like it's it's it's, it's art you know you wouldn't you wouldn't go to a, a gallery and edit an art because it's got a nude in it you know yeah it, yeah it's it, it's um yeah you you have to sort of be brave and things like that so. But yeah, so I, I would have pref- I would prefer the collapsing line to be in the single, but um, but uh, I just love that song. It's 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 I love the video that they did in in Berlin, and it's um, you know, it's definitely one of you know, I, I try to take myself away from the fact that I recorded it 
and produced it, but it's um, mm. you know it's up there with my favorite songs. And but I think some of that is my experience. The the experience of recording it was really joyous, and uh, um, yeah. So I think that 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 kind of colors my judgment on it yeah. as well. So, it's it's not one that you got like stuck in for weeks. It's one that came out really sort of organically. Yeah, but sometimes yeah. you got to dig for songs, and sometimes yeah, the songs you really have to kind of uh, that really challenge you. Um, like, yeah, like, like 1984 is a great example. You know, it was so always really challenging to work on, but it, I listen to it now and it is utterly brilliant. You know, it's as a starting song for an album, I, I think it's, I think it's, um, it's a really great statement. And, uh, so, you know, and it's, and it's, and a lot of people seem to, I sound like Donald Trump, a lot of people seem to like that song. <laughs> <laughs> people are looking, telling me. Looking back on the album from your, from your like viewpoint now, um, the album, like we've we've said, it was divisive. It wasn't massively commercially successful. Uh, certainly not as successful as, as previous albums. Does that perception of the record change your viewpoint on it at all? No, no. I because I, it's it's the most work I did on any album by the band. You know, yeah. all, you know, I've worked on a lot of records, but that was the one that was, you know, and the fact that it was for me to to have an album that I'd worked on and, and the other tracks were done by Tony Visconti is like, it's just like a fanboy moment to the max for me. You know, it's just yeah. like, you know, I just like, I, I think something I would have dreamed about when I started off as a musician, you know. Um, so what is your view on the album, Greg, looking back at it? I, I think there are moments of genius on it and there's some, um, I think the I Live to Fall Asleep vocal by James is one of the, best vocals he's ever done i think it's just like it's just, you know for me it just transcends everything on that record the, the delivery of that vocal is it's go back and listen to it and listen to the vocal it's a beautiful it's just, song yeah yeah and it's and, and there are some really amazing moments on it and, and every few years i'll well often on an anniversary and people put lots of posts up about it and it and it, it does divide fans but it definitely is, you know those albums that that fans kind of take to heart because it's theirs and, and they and, and they kind of like the fact mm. that not everybody likes it. Oh, I think it's yeah. aged like a fine wine, Lifeblood. Yeah, it's it's really, you know, when you understand it in the context of their career, I mm. think it's, you know, it's a hugely transitional moment and, um, you know, and it's, 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 it's hard for me when you sort of see Manic's favourite albums list and you, Lifeblood is usually somewhere near the bottom. Yeah, and I and I feel it doesn't deserve that because I think the fact the mere fact they were being experimental deserves a bit better than that. But you know, it's not for me to judge. It's like, it's I. I kind of find it hard to listen to sometimes because of the reactions to it. But mm. then, but then when I put it on, I'm always pleasantly surprised about how where it, how it all hangs together. And like Solitude sometimes is is a beautiful, beautiful song. You know. And, Definitely, um, and, yeah. I, and I and I love the fact that you know with that that they were starting to address, you know, Richie's disappearance and and because it was it was something that would they would sometimes get spoken about, uh, but there was always kind of dark moments as well. Like I remember being in Mono Valley and there was a press report that some some shoes with feet in had been found in in the Bristol Channel. Right. Yeah. Oh, God. And it was like, you know that. I mean, how do you deal with stuff like that? It's like you don't even know. Uh, it turned out, you know, they DNA tested it. And it wasn't. It, it wasn't Richie, and it was like, 
you know, how do you deal with it? And there was a lot, there was a lot of comic humor over the years. Which I think there's a defense, but um, it was like, yeah, it was. So there's always that kind of like, and, and to and to address it in Cardiff Afterlife was, I think, was a really really brave move. Definitely and, feels uh, like you know, a cathartic record on on, on some yeah. levels. Yeah, and I guess I guess um, Journal for Plague Lovers is the ultimate kind of like um, you know sort of uh, you know the ultimate catharsis would be that album. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and um, and that's a really interesting record. To kind of, I'll be interested to see what your thoughts on that are because it's such. Um, you know, I'm very interested to hear Lucas's thoughts on that album. I, which, which we won't, it's, it's, <laughs> we won't this is really interesting now. for me, just because I have none of this being tainted by knowing what the fans think. Right, right. So I just <laughs> and so I like unashamedly didn't like the Holy Bible and right. felt no guilt. And then the flat, there's, there's albums that might be divisive and I and that I might like or dislike. It's quite nice to not have to worry about yeah. the fact that I know enough sort of yeah. thing. But you are winning people over. It's like Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah, it's awful. It's they, they've listened to us so much, they think they like you now. <laughs> I, I'm, really, I'm really interested. I, I, I hope the fact that you've spoken to me about it won't colour your opinions on the album because I'd really, really just to know what you all think of it because i we've been listening to it for a few weeks now i have firmly got a lot of my notes already written for that oh, album right, which good. aren't aren't going to be being changed because a lot and of people annoyed, like, i'm annoyed that we're doing this episode up before recording yeah, yeah. for that album. We, we've timed this wrong because <laughs> i'm just like but i bought i got what to talk about it no it's good it's good because I, I i i i was sort of you know I, a lot of the, the the people i that email me about it are sort of people who remember it from the time so mm. it's interesting to see how fat people get fans later you know they, they got into the band because of like send away the tigers or um or postcards or something to sort of how they they see the album mm. is it some weird anomaly or is it kind of like a really nice sort of um breather from everything else i i you know i guess time will tell what people genuinely think about it but I'm I'm yeah. I'm immensely proud of everything I've done I did with the band because they're an iconic band and and is it with you know being working with them was always in education you know I, I left school to join a band I never went to university or anything so to to learn about art and culture and 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 politics is something that really still interests me now and that all came out of my time with them because they you know you're in a room with three very educated well-read people yeah, who have who are who have very strong opinions, and it's like, and you kind of learn stuff. You know, once you get past the ridicule stuff, you know, I, I think I mentioned it on Neil's podcast, <laughs> I, and, and Nick was talking about Albert Camus, and I was like, "Who's Camus?" And like, honestly, it was like the ridicule I got for the whole day <laughs> about it was like, I so I right, I better go and do some research. You know, I don't want to like yeah. you know before I open my mouth again, I'm going to actually at least find out who I'm trying to who I'm talking about and. <laughs> Yeah, I just felt like like the ultimate heathen. I, I think in general context and time has been very kind to Lifeblood. But I think that almost one of the most important bits of context around it is that after it, they decided to to down tools for a couple of years. Yeah. Was that always the plan or, or do you think that was a reaction to Lifeblood? I think it's probably a reaction. I yeah. mean, the solo albums were really interesting. I mean, I, I'm well, you fascinated. You worked on those to as well, right? I did both. I worked on both. Yeah. It was like um, oh, wow. the so on James's album. I was kind of very much the musician. Like me and James did. I think I played drums on like eight songs on that album, and um, 
and I produced, uh, did a couple of tracks. One ended up as a B-side and the other one was the cover of um, To See a Friend in Tears, mm. um, which I just I actually played keyboards on and keyboards and, and, and it was just acoustic guitar, um, like Omnichord and, and, um, and vocal. Um, but the re- I played drums on a lot of that record and it was myself and James, we just sit in a room, we'd play a couple of Zeppelin songs and then we'd kind of like, right, let's play this idea and we'd kind of like, so um, all the singles, uh, um, like uh, uh, An English Gentleman and um, No Way to Tell a Lie, you know, all those came out of those sessions. We we did them with with myself, James and Guy Massey um, in Hoxton. And uh, yeah, so we did, it was really enjoyable being a musician and playing with James as a musician. He's, he is without a doubt like the finest musician I've ever worked with and the most instinctive musician I've, I've ever worked with and to just to be one-on-one in a room playing it's just it was just it was it was amazing you know really moments you live for as a musician to sort of just jam some ideas jam some covers and then play some songs and then end up on his record yeah that does Nick's, Nick, Nick, Nick's album was much more hands-on it was like it was myself and Nick and Lars Williams who still works with the band now and uh we just um, we didn't even know what Nick was going to do. We he booked some studio time. <laughs> we didn't know what he, you know is he going to do some poetry? Is he going to like? And he came in with all these really cool garagey songs. So I played drums on that album as well. And um, and, wow. and we just you know the only brief Nick gave us was I don't want any bass on this record. <laughs> okay. And you know okay. Okay, yeah. so, right. So it's a bass player's solo album with no bass on it. <laughs> I love it. Classic wire, you know, <laughs> classic wire. And uh, yeah. so um, so I had to find all these other ways to try and get low end in, in the thing. And then we ended up doing some gigs with no bass. It was We did four gigs of Nicky Wire's Secret Society with myself and Lars Williams and, and Andy Taylor on guitar and Nick. And no and, bass. Uh, we, and no bass. And we four <laughs> legendary gigs that... That that, that they, they've, they've turned into like the beat, the um the the Sex Pistols at the Hundred Club. I was there at Nicky Wire at the Hay on Wire Festival, kind of thing, because it <laughs> oh, was yes, like the, it was basically involved Nick, Nick drinking a lot of wine and yeah. and becoming like a stand up comedian and um and just brilliant evenings. You know, they were just um <laughs> you had to be there to really know. Um, I've actually got one on, one of them on video that I, I keep threatening to actually release on YouTube at some point, and Nick's given me permission to do it. <laughs> oh, as long as they edit, as long as they edit out all the all the banter in between the songs. No, you oh, should. That's the best you bit, should, surely. You should just put the banter up. That's the bit that people yeah. Yeah, yeah, want to yeah, hear from yeah, me. Yeah. You don't um, want to cross the wire, you know. It's like, um, so so that, so that was really that was great, and I think. Like I've, I've recounted the story on um, on on Neil's podcast in that, like. There were some there were some moments that you, you, you where that that helped the transition to send away the tigers. Like um, your your love alone is essentially the verses are the verses and chorus are from a song that James rejected for his album, and the middle eight section is a song that Nick rejected for his album, and they put all the pieces together, and that is your love alone. I did so not without know that. without the pros because James's album changed very much the, the approach to it changed. It started off. As a much more sort of a much heavier, more rock album, and then it, it it morphed into this kind of more ELO kind of vocal led record. Yeah. So a lot of the early ideas that we worked on got rejected. It never ended up on the record. But one of those ideas is essentially that the 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 um uh, or certainly the backing track for Your Love Alone. And um, yeah, so they were they were both um, sort of not reject is the wrong word, but both unused sections from the solo yeah. albums. And you know, Adam that looks like his mind's been blown. That's just very interesting. That's <laughs> like, that, yeah. 
and that uh, and that and that was um you know that song relaunched their career so it's like you just um you know there's no such thing as a bad idea it's just finding the right timing of when to use it really well, that is yeah. one of the three songs that prior to doing this podcast, I knew. That's, so, yeah, yeah you say about relaunch their career. That's yeah. literally one of those three <laughs> songs that I could name. Because Nick really wanted to bring Nina in to do some work on, on Zeitgeist, on, on, on the album, you know, because and we were all like massive Cardigans fans. And uh, I was kind of like, I was like a bit peeved. It was like, oh, man, because, you know, she is just an incredible musician. And I just like, mm. I totally love her. And... And uh, and when I, I met her after the O2 gig when they did all the singles, and I was yeah, yeah. I was the most starstruck I've ever been, you know, because it's like <laughs> oh my god. So um, yeah, I was like, oh man, I wish you'd have done done Nick's album, and you know, because I didn't work on that set on, on that session. You know, I, I just worked, I worked on like three or four songs on Send Away the Tigers, but yeah. So it was so I think definitely that the solo album thing was a huge transition, and I'm really interested to hear the new solo albums. Oh, you know, yeah, I've heard a couple of songs yeah. of James's. I'm desperate to hear Nick's record because, you know, you never know with Nick what he's going to come up with because, <laughs> you know, he, yeah, he is like, he is just, um, he's, you know, he's he's the sort of Marvin the Paranoid Android of musicians, you know, the brain the size of a planet and you kind of like, you just don't know what he's going to come out with. Is it going to be deeply, <laughs> yeah. deeply offensive or just like total genius, you know? And it's like, so you're always on edge wanting, wanting to, you know, to know what um, what what he what he feels, so so I'm really really yeah. interested to hear to hear to hear Nick's record. But um, I didn't know there was a Nicky Wire. I knew there was another yeah. JDB album coming out. I didn't know there was another Nicky Wire album. Keeps, yeah, they've been shift they've been shift working um, on, on. So James has used the studio some days and Nick some days. Uh, this is just fun. Mm. I've, I've not actually spoken to either of them about it. So it's um, you know just from what I've read, and I saw Robin Robin Turner. Uh, the PR guy yeah. and and sort of a friend, our friend of the band and DJ and general all round genius. He put a post up um, saying like, cooking dinner, listening to the Nicky Wire solo album. So I presume it's <laughs> kind of done. <laughs> yeah. It exists somewhere. Or he was talking but, about the first album. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> maybe. I mean, I get so much love from people from from I Killed the Zeitgeist. It's like it just. It's if you talk about a polarizing al- polarizing album, that is the polarizing <laughs> record. It's like people absolutely completely fucking hate it, or they they're like, "This is the greatest thing ever made," you know. And it's like, <laughs> we are going to cover the solo not- albums, so uh, I <laughs> imagine there'll be an equally polarizing stance on the podcast. I'm the, particularly this- curious to know what Steve thinks of Nikki's solo album. <laughs> actually, yeah, because yeah. yeah. we we literally we, started we the record with like. Because, you know, Nick will be the first to admit, you know, like um, sort of Wattsville blues and stuff aside, you know, he's not the greatest singer. Really? And uh, yeah, he, you know, he, he, so, um, but, you know, he, he, he'll front up, you know, bearing in mind, I was, I was in Cuba recording the gig, the Castro gig at the Karl Theatre when they played a lot of the Know Your Enemy songs and played yeah. Wattsville blues included. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's like, you know, he'll front up. But, you know, apart from that, he was like, we were always joking, oh, we should do some gigs, ha, ha, ha. You know, you'd have to sing. Yeah, you'd be hilarious. And we, um, by the end of it, it's like, we did a BBC radio session and uh, it was like, which is actually, you should definitely seek out like the Beth and Elvin BBC Wales radio session we did for Zeitgeist. And it's uh, it's really exciting. It we, do some co- we do some cover versions and it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really like, full-on exciting and we were kind of quite on form because we'd, we'd been rehearsing for the gigs and we finished the album and 
and uh, that's yeah. And there was um, there was also a really brilliant song that never made the album that was a internet only release as he used to do back then. Um, oh, huh. What was it? What was the song? We used to, we used to start the gigs with it. Is it Daydreamer um, Eyes? Daydreamer Eyes, which is my favorite of all the songs that we did. That's my favorite Nicky Wire song. Yeah, it's just incredible. And when we played, how did gigs, that not make it, was, it on the album? I don't know. You'd have to ask Nick. <laughs> okay, well, if you've got his number, you could forward that to me. Yeah, Nick's, Nick's <laughs> mind is a complex and brilliant place that I wouldn't even know how you'd live in it. You know? Yeah, it's like, yeah. And uh, for a man who's like, you know, it's such a dichotomy of like genius and normality. It's um, yeah, it's 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 why that they are. You know, it's that combination of those guys, you know, and you know, including Richie, that makes them the the force that they are. They just um. They're a unique set of human beings, and it's uh, it's you cannot really describe them until you've spent time with them. And it's like I remember Kerry Carly and my business partner at Big Noise saying, "On paper, they're the weirdest band in the world because they're such a weird selection of people." <laughs> even he said, he said, to, he said they even look quite strange because Nick's super tall, and you know, it's like it's it's just. Yeah, it's and we always joke. Yeah. There's, I think there's a there's, there or there was a Manics tribute band where Jay, the James musician was way taller than the Nick musician, and it's like yeah. it was, <laughs> that doesn't uh, work. Um, <laughs> That's not right. Because you know, we, 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 we played with them because we did because I did also did Patrick Jones's album and 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 James and Nick both contributed to Pat's album, mm. um, and we released it on our label, and it was like basically lots of musicians from all over Wales and. You know the successful artists from the time all contributing to Pat's poetry, and uh, we did we we did a gig with Pat at a Manics convention with um you know we we were we were we were supported by a Manics covers band and it was like it was a Manics, yeah it was it was really um yeah it was kind of uh, really fascinating and I loved doing those because <laughs> we opened for the Manics on the uh, on the uh, Millennium the Millennium Manics Millennium gig we were first on the bill. And I basically yeah. brought all the musicians who played on the album who were around, um, and we I had about fifteen people on stage at one point, including like <laughs> uh, yeah, all the Welsh actors: Yoan Griffith, um, Matthew Rees, uh, Ricky Ola, Andrew Howard. You know who I see? I mean, I've seen Matthew Rees on TV all the time now. He's, and just we just won an Emmy or whatever, or sort of, and um, all all doing like Gorilla Tapestry by Patrick Jones. You know, and it was. Um, yeah, crazy. That's amazing. And then we all got bl- then we all got blind drunk and watched the Manics play the, and, and watched the Millennium <laughs> yeah. come in, and it was because we we get to a bar and like most of the audience. Ideal, absolutely ideal. Yeah. You mentioned a minute ago, Greg, about the, the you at the Cuba gig. We were talking about Wattsville Blues. Yeah, Adam had a guess when we recorded that, which was that that Nicky didn't know he was going to be singing, and that and that JDB dropped that on him whilst they were on stage. Can you confirm or deny? <laughs> I I have literally no idea of that. I, we'll, I we'll take that as a confirmation. They, then we'll take that. As yeah, a yes. that's yeah, tr- yeah. confirmed. Yeah. I mean, set lists were always quite last minute. I mean, I'd never know what the set list was going to be till I'd see it on the stage or see it. Really? Around, you know, God, so that sounds yeah. stressful as but well. That, but, but that I sounds like, like the most stressful thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yes. I was mean, on the greatest hits tour. It was like because we, we learned so many songs for it. I mean, because the, the front row of the audience is the same every night. You kind of want to rotate the songs a bit so they got some new songs to listen to. Like we, yeah. we even did like I think we did so why so sad one night on the greatest yeah. tour and you know the songs and, and Revol we did one night you know all the songs that you never expect to hear. And uh, nice. but but I think the, 
the Cuba gig was <laughs> surprise, surprise. It was for me. It was really last minute. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like I was I I was in the flat and I got and James phone and said, um, "Do you want to come to Cuba?" As he always do does, in understated <laughs> stuff. Uh, what what are you what are you what are you doing on Thursday or whatever? I I, I said uh, I didn't. I knew something was coming. He said, you "Got a passport?" I said, "Yeah, yeah." Um, what are you doing right, can Thursday? You, can, yeah, can you can you can, can you come to Cuba and record the gig? And I'm like, "All right." I kind of got I kind of got used to this over the years. You know, the, the phone would ring. It'd be James. It'd be like, "Right, okay, what's going to happen next?" And um, so I like so of course I go to get my passport, and of course I cannot find my passport anywhere. So it's like great. So I got to get a new passport, and then all right. So where's my birth certificate? Oh shit! I can't even find my birth certificate. So cue the next two days of utter chaos, having to go back to my you know my birth town in Hereford to sort of find this like to get a birth certificate, then go to Newport, get a passport, get 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 a, get a visa to get into Cuba, and then. Yeah, and Jesus. then we get we 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 get we fly to Madri- to Madrid, and then the flights to um, the flights late, so we miss our our flight to Cuba. So we end up arriving in Havana after getting stopped and searched as as I they thought I was a BBC journalist because I was hanging out with the BBC journalists. It's like I got get to the gig like a few hours before the gig starts, and half the gear hasn't arrived <laughs> from London. So I'm piecing oh. together, kind of like trying to get enough stuff to work so I can record the gig. And there's a film crew there, and it's like. So at the moment the gig finished, like somebody gets on on a plane with all the the tapes and everything. So I didn't even know if it did anything and worked. So I just went and got blind yeah. drunk on mojitos. Oh, and uh, yeah, Lovely. they're all but, worse nights, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but you know, it, but and and also twenty minutes before the gig, nobody was there. It was an empty theater, and I think everyone Weird. was starting to get holy shit. This is going to be yeah. This is going to be a disaster because it was full of British yeah. British press and everything, and uh, and then um. All of a sudden, all these Castro turns up with busloads full of people, as as you Mad. do. Did you meet Castro? And, uh, I saw Castro. I didn't meet him. No, okay, him. but to be honest, yeah. you know, you you sense his presence. You know, he's yeah, in full of, of fatigues. You know, and it's like <laughs> it was an interesting year because I'd seen I I Bill Clinton came to talk in my hometown of Hay on Why that that year as well, and I was like, oh my god, I've seen Bill Clinton and Fidel Castro in real life in the last like three months. <laughs> and it was, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was like, yeah, pretty extreme. But well, that's yeah, what so, touring with the Manics will give you. Castro yeah, it was and definitely. Uh, and and I was all and I know the, I remember I had another one of those phone calls when James played on. We did the um, Tom Jones Reload record. So, mm. What are you doing on the weekend? Um, <laughs> do you want to come and play on this record for Tom Jones? I'm like, yes, I do because it's like my mother. My mother loves Tom Jones, and it's like. If I ever I, my mother's going to love me, it's, it's going to be because I did this record. So, <laughs> Does James ever call you and it's not, do you want to record Tom Jones? Do you want to go to Cuba? Do you want to come on tour? Is it ever like, do you want to go yeah, for a pint? quite often. <laughs> I, think, I think being, now I'm in New Zealand, um, if, he's, if he's ever kind of out doing late night shopping, right. he knows that I'll be awake and we'll talk about rugby, <laughs> uh, rugby a lot. And it's like, you know, we sort of, uh, you know, I, I, I try and catch up with him when I'm back in town, and uh, and we sort of, yeah, we go to rugby games. We, we yeah, I think the last time I saw him, we went to see Newport Cardiff rugby in um in in Newport, and yeah, it's nice, it's nice to 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 hang out and not have the pressures of of, of doing, you know. I've done yeah. my, you know, I, I've, I've, I still do quite a bit of production, but I've moved away from it a bit in the last few years. I've, I've been doing a lot more sort of industry stuff and and right. uh, and. Um, 
which has been great because it, it, you know, I'm trying to be part of the music industry here. But it's, uh, yeah, they were really, really interesting times because it's, um, you know, what's not to love about being spending ten years with a band that fascinating? You know, it's like They're it's like the back, band, ba- backbone yeah. of my career, really. So, yeah. What is it that you think makes the Manics kind of, I guess, special? That's a big question. It's the feather boas. It's the feather boas. <laughs> yeah, it's. I think it's, it's that ability to evolve, while still yeah. retaining like a real core base of fans. Yeah. Um, and just being doing what they want to do. You know, you, you, you wouldn't say they've they've not been influenced by outside kind of. You know, you know they've always been on a major record label, which itself has its load of pressures. You know, they're not yep. like sort of. They're not like. They've got an ind- a sort of independent artist philosophy within the confines of a major ra- major label, and and just, and and also I always joke they were like the Ryan Giggs of uh, of bands. You know they've been with the same record label their whole career. The record labels changed its name about five times, but it's still essentially the same <laughs> record label. And you know it's like it's CBS, Sony, whatever they are on now, and even Nick's solo album was like an offshoot of Sony, and it's like you know so. You know they they're sort of like you know they've been faithful to the same record label for their whole careers, but but they have that that independent ethos where they kind of do what they want to do. You know they they have that autonomy, and I think that that's what keeps it fresh. You know, but yeah. it'd be interesting. To, I'm really interested to see the solo albums and the next album that they do because it's been a while now since uh, yeah um, Resistance is futile. It's, it's been, been two years already. Oh, I thought it was longer than that. Oh, maybe, you know, maybe you're right. Yeah, because that kind of came out of nowhere. They just kind of appeared. I guess because they have their own studio, it's kind of they just, um, you know, they just can just do things at their own at their own pace, which is yeah. Uh, or they've just it, moved, they, haven't they? Yeah, they they because 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 to closed down because that was redeveloped, yeah. same as Big Noise was, and they've got uh, they've got Door to the River now, which is a beautiful little cottage out in the countryside and with all the oh, gear in nice. it, and um, they it's really the studio, nice. Door to there. the River. Yeah, is that yeah. the name of the studio? That's yeah. yeah, that's one of our favourite uh, collective Manic tracks. I think "Door to the River." Yeah. Yes, yeah. that was a, that was a song that immediately made it into my top ten after yeah. hearing it on the very same record that was we did that. It's a really yeah. I know I noted you, that 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 you all hated "Grace of God." Uh, I don't think. That's <laughs> oh, I feel like you're. Being a little bit unfair, <laughs> I like Grace of God. I think it's good. I like Grace of God. It's, it's my first top ten here. I, of course, I love it. You know, it's like it, it's. Um... Sorry, I think that taken into context of their career, there by the grace of God, because of its of its style and its kind of meet that, that, that meeting of electronic uh, sort of stuff and rock, it kind of yeah. gets absorbed into Lifeblood for me. Yeah, uh, but I'm a real sucker for like Peter Hook bass lines, and it's yeah. you know it's it. Give me a, you know, I, I often use that on on records myself. That you know, get the bass to play like the high melody part and things. And it's um, it's yeah, I think that's why I like it. I just like that approach. And I and it was it was really quite quick to record. It was I think we were working on other stuff and um, and it was like you know, as classic James would you know, you get to midnight, you're like absolutely exhausted. It's like I've got this one idea. Let's just let's just let's make a start on it. <laughs> yeah, four a.m. You're still going, and it's um, and, and 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 a lot of grace of God came out of that. Um, you know those sessions at Mono Valley. So, so it's um, yeah. So again, it was quite. It's been like Empty Souls. It quite it had quite a. It was quite a, you know, an easy process doing the recording, and I think that that also feeds in. We didn't play it a lot on the on the Greatest Hits tour, even mm. though it was on the album that we were kind of promoting. Mm. It was an occasional appearance in the set. 
you know, but the set was tended to be the, everything you expected it would be in the set, you know, all the really, the know, big the really ones, big radio hits. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. But you did throw some interesting bangers. stuff in every, yeah, you know, all the bangers, except <laughs> no freedom of speech, obviously. Yeah, yeah. A, a travesty. <laughs> Why yeah. even get tickets to the gig yeah, at that point? Exactly. So, um, what, so, Adam, what was, the, what was the first year you saw the band? The first year I saw the band yeah. uh, was in 2005 on the Past, Present, Future tour. Right. Which so you 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 didn't see the great you didn't see the two thousand and three greatest hits tour then didn't see the greatest yeah. hits tour. My first experience with the Manics live was when they were like dusting off loads of rarities and stuff they hadn't played in ten years, and I did yeah. not appreciate it because I had no idea what they were. <laughs> right, right. So they, and and now you're jealous of your past self. Yeah, now you're like, you I wish, wish I could go and really see that gig. It. Is that is that the tour, the tour I came? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With you, 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 you came to Guildhall, and, and they played of walking abortion. Yeah, first. they opened with of walking abortion. Which what? at the time yeah, I didn't right, think of anything of, but now I'm like, well, that's a weird play. I like that. But I like those <laughs> weird set things, like you know, like yeah, when we did great. Glastonbury and like did Die in the Summertime, and uh, yeah, you know, it's like it's like yeah, I loved it when they throw kind of crazy because they because that Glastonbury set was just re- bizarre. It was a bizarre <laughs> set. Well, you were you warming know, up and, for Moby, right? Yeah, I, I, Moby <laughs> nearly didn't didn't actually do. He was threatened to pull out the day before, and then and and. Really? Uh, yeah, and 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 and, uh, uh, and Michael Eve was just like, well, wait, I don't really care if he pulls out. You know, we'll just move everyone on the bill. So I was kind of <laughs> hoping he would Eves. he would pull out, so I could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you but, say your headline. I think honest, everyone sunset, was hoping he would pull out, Greg. Yeah, the sunset set <laughs> is is a great time, place, and it was raining. It was such a classic Mannix moment. It was like you know, it's daylight and the rain starts, and all the Welsh flyers come out, and then it's, by the time you finish, <laughs> yeah. it's dark. It was like it was just gonna you know, have a perfect kind of Mannix. And they, and and they, and I love the version of uh, of um, this is yesterday that they yeah they played on that on that on that gig and it's um yeah it was just a you should watch the video of the whole set it's really quite it's, interesting. it's on I think we linked to it in our last uh, in our last batch of show notes it is right. a, a very interesting set it's very cool um, yeah yeah we have two more questions if that's okay um, yeah, Lucas, it's fine, I know, yeah Lucas I think you had one oh why did you throw it onto me. <laughs> <laughs> when he says Lucas you have one uh, Adam actually well this is the thing uh, you were most curious about is, is... I was curious about this because when I was looking through your uh, your you know credits um, what was it like working with Bart Simpson it was, it <laughs> because was... that stood out immediately it's definitely an outlier <laughs> on, 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 on yeah. <laughs> Would you get phone calls from Homer, like, you know, Thursday, we're going to Cuba? <laughs> no, but I did have some interactions with Homer, and it was... Um, yeah. It, Dan, I mean, to, Dan Castellano. It was really, really surreal. I mean, it came about because I just signed to EMI Music Publishing, and they sent me some lyrics. It was like, can you write a song for this record? And... Um, and I think I think lots of people were submitting songs for it, so I didn't think anything of it. I thought, well, did I you know it was a Simpsons record? Did you yeah, know it was called the Yellow oh, Album? Okay. Okay. <laughs> no, I didn't know it was called the Yellow Album, but but there were three sets of lyrics, and one was this song, "The Ten Commandments of Bart," which is um, oh, that gave it away. Yeah, that gave it. Away. Yeah, and I saw, yeah. and, and 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 also Matt Groening had written the lyrics, so I thought, yeah. well, I'll do that one because there's a better chance of that song being on the record. So, and I demoed this song up in my studio in Cardiff, the, the studio where. You know, the Mannix would rehearse next door and the, the whole stairwell incident happened. I was in that studio. Yeah. And uh, 
yeah, I demoed up the song and I sent it off. And then the next thing I know, a fax arrives because this is how long ago it was. <laughs> and it, it was basically like um, uh, uh, from um, Fox in, in the States saying, we like this, with a with thing about, my, with about the song saying, we like this, send him over. That was all it said. That's very <laughs> so, um, ominous. So I went over. I went over to like yeah. uh, over to, to LA me. and worked with like Nancy Cartwright and Dan Castellaneta and Matt Groening and um, Doug Norwine, who's who's Lisa's saxophone player in the series. Oh you know? wow! And, uh, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, and 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 I remember on the first day, like um, this, this sort of blonde woman walked into the studio and and. Uh, and uh, I said, "Oh yeah, you're here to see Matt, Matt, Matt Groening." And she said, "She said, oh, she said, no, no, I'm Nancy. I'm Bart Simpson." I'm like, "Oh," so the, and she said, "Who are you?" And I said, "Oh, I'm nobody." <laughs> I didn't know what to say. I was like, "What do I say? Oh, I'm just some well, I'm some chancer from Cardiff who's lucked into this gig, you know, yeah. which is what my head Incredible. was saying, you know." And it was, uh, yeah, it was truly <laughs> incredible. I mean, you know, aside from the man, it's probably the most kind of like interesting thing that I've I've ever had to do. And it was. Um, I mean, yeah. it's, it certainly stands out on a credit list. I was like, The Simpsons. <laughs> sure, Surely yeah. that's like a band called The Simpsons or something. But, What's but happening? Oh no, it's, it's The like, Simpsons. <laughs> it's almost. It's like one of the musicians I work with. Like, oh my god, you work with The Simpsons? It's because they're such an icon. They're like the Manics. They're iconic, and it's like, yeah. it's like, it's, it's like, you know, it is such an unusual. Thing. It's not, you know, not many people get to do that, and it's, uh, yeah, I'm definitely, um, you know, I'm definitely quite proud of that it's, it's, and, and it's it's weird because it's like a dance track and it's kind of almost like a house thing and it's like it's so unlike Amazing. anything else i've ever done so it is it's a weird yeah. outlier in what has been like a long and very interesting uh career for you um, i thought you were going to say illustrious then illustrious i can Ooh. use illustrious if you like <laughs> better. i'll use it in the show notes yeah. for you greg um, yeah. Yeah. thank you so much for doing this uh, we have kept you long enough i know that you've got flights and meetings and, oh, and all sorry. sorts of things to do you do want today. my top 10 Oh, yes. yes, I absolutely do. <laughs> I completely forgot. Yes, please. Are we just going for yes. like a straight top 10 or is this if you put any kind of spin on it? Well, I started off doing like, let's do a top 10 that kind of um, has some connection with stuff, my time with the band. And then right, I thought, okay. no, that's really indulgent. But it ends up like half of it's got kind of, <laughs> this, half of it's got some sort of, um, you know, like connection of my time. But then it's like, Sorry, I'll just pick the songs I like, you know, and um, good, so it's a good, bit of a, it's, it's kind of a little bit of a weird eclectic thing. You'll you'll like some of it, you won't like some of it. Um, let me. F- so I'm just going to fly my playlist. Oh, and I imagine some of these I'm going to have never heard of because I haven't listened to those albums yet. That is quite possible. Yes. Y- yes. Unless Greg has been a, some of these. Unless Greg has been a classicist and only gone like before 2003. No, I did. I, 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 I tried to, you know, um, cover the whole whole of their career. So, right, number ten coming in at number ten. Okay, <laughs> Lucas will like this. Mister Carbohydrate. What oh. a song! He loves Lucas it. loves it. That would. I think. I, I think if the if I'd done my top ten. Two weeks later, that might have made it, you know. Yeah. Really? It's just... I feel like maybe number 10, whatever it was, might have been... I'd actually forgotten there. I played on it till I went back and had to listen to it. I was like, oh, that's me on there. And it's like... <laughs> and it's... Um, yeah, it's just... Good. It, it's the classic... It's the classic Wire song. It is the... It is kind of like... The sort of... You know, the perception of what Nick is. You know, this kind of guy who does lots of hoovering and like... 
live as this weird double life of being, you know, it's all that's cla- it's the classic wire, you know, <laughs> the tale of the tale of wire kind of thing, and it's um, yeah. and it's just a great song, and you know, it's just, and it's yeah, it's just um, I I've forgotten how much I loved it until I went back and listened to it. First one in the list so, is a B side. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it's a B side. Um, number nine, "Walk Me to the Bridge" of Futurology. Oh, great song! I'm gonna I'm gonna spoilers. Great song. I love it. It's got, like you were saying uh, earlier about their kind of Bowie sort of stuff, it's got that. Uh, it's also got a bit of that kind of that Simple Minds kind of um, New yeah, Gold Dream kind of feel about it, which I, which I really like. I remember, chorus. I remember hearing it hearing it um, when we were up at, I popped into Rockfield to visit and they were, doing, they were playing it and it was, uh, yeah, it was really cool. Very cool um, single. Yeah. Lucas and Steve have no idea yet. Yes. <laughs> um, looking forward to it. They will not know the next one either, which is, um, which is, uh, um, it's not war, just the end of love, from postcards from a young man. That is a single from postcards from a young man, which I have lots of thoughts about that I shan't right. ruin here. And and a really great p- appearance by the Vulcan Strings, who uh, I, yeah. I brought in to do to do some strings on um, uh, which track on on one of the tracks on Stand Away the Tigers. I brought the Vulcans in, and they they've become quite Indian long-term summer. collaborators. No, that's that's Sally. That's Sally Herbert who did Design ah. for Life um, strings. It would have been um, oh, what songs did I do on there? Maybe Second Ooh. Great Depression or something. Okay, maybe poss- possibly. Anyway, so they've had they've had quite a long and the strings on that are great. Andy Walters is a really great string arranger, and um, yeah, so it's one of the things I like that. And next one is Empty Souls. Uh, I, yeah, I mean. Because I can't say anything. You can't say anything. This is good. It's a way to shut Lucas up. Just pick later songs. Yeah, yeah. You you, you say about you say about being indulgent. I feel like it's also really indulgent of us that we we think people give a shit about our opinions enough that we have to hide them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to show my cards and say that I really like Empty Souls. Oh, good. The album version, not the single version. Okay, good distinction. Yeah, yeah, and it's um. I just love. I I put it in there because I love the experience of making it. I love the track, and you know that it was my probably my favorite memory of Lifeblood is that track. So so that's an indulgence for me. Um, the next one is the girl who wanted to be God. What a tune! Big badger for Lucas. Another one of Lucas's. Yeah. I think that was number three for me. I think wasn't it? It was. It was up yeah, there. Yeah. I went. I went to see them play um, the Everything Must Go tour in Stockholm, and. Uh, I went because I really wanted to see that play, them play that song live because I'd never seen them play it live before, and it was really? like, I just love that song. It is just like why it was never a single, I don't know. It's just a, it was beautiful. It's just amazing. You know, I like, would love to see them play it live, and they they'll play it in December, right? They played it live at the Southampton gig that uh, I first went to in two thousand and five, and I don't remember right. it, so that is annoying. <laughs> is that because you were drunk? No, just because I yeah. it's uh, I just don't remember a lot about that night for some reason. Was I drunk? You too no, busy cr- crying because you were there. That's it. That's yeah. it. Wasn't that your first gig? First ever gig? Yeah. Yeah. So next up, we've got this is yesterday from the Holy oh, Bible. Such a good song, a beautiful which is, song. Which I, yes. I, like I said, I loved, I loved, I loved playing that in the um, in, in in the set, and it was um, yeah, it's just a really great song, really great song. Um, number four, Little Baby Nothing. Another great song. I absolutely love <laughs> Little Baby Nothing. Uh, that was yeah. in my top ten as well. Oh, just so yeah. good. The the decision it's, to have Tracy Lords sing on that is is genius. 
because it was going to be Kylie originally doing that. It vocal, was, yeah. That double vocal. Yeah, and the, the reason I put it in is it's not even necessarily this version that's on the album. I, I always loved it at the gigs. And every night we'd play it, it would be my favourite part of the night because James would always mm. deliver on the vocal mm. every night. And, and, it, and even when I put it on the other day, I felt the chills and because of the memory of actually playing it at the set. And it was like, yeah. I, I'd, I'd see it on the set. I'm like, oh, right, Little Baby Nothing's coming up. And it was just, um, it always felt like it, glorious. And, you know, you could see how much the audience loved it. All the Feather Boa Brigade would just <laughs> love the song. And it, and it was like, you know, I, I just, even now when I listen to it, I, and even talking about it, it's like, I just remember brings back that sort of, kind of recollection of like, every night I would love playing that song. It's just, uh, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Number three, got to be Motorcycle, really. Oh, of course. It's yeah. Got yeah, banger. Yeah. yeah. Hot, hot badger. <laughs> um, yeah, hot badger. <laughs> it's, you know, it's motorcycle emptiness. You can't not have it. <laughs> yeah. You think that number two or number one is going to be designed, don't Well, you? this is the thing we've had with people. Like, I don't know. I, I left it off mine. Yeah. And Steve it's, left it off his? No, mine was on there. Yeah. But because it, it... Steve put it at the very yeah. tippy top. Number two, it's controversial, and and again, Lucas can't comment on it. <laughs> Indian summer. Greg, what are you doing? Greg, what are <laughs> you doing? <laughs> I, I, I. Okay, I know Sendai the Tigers because that's the first. That's like the era I kind of started listening to them, right, and that's right. the gigs I went to with you. So I, I've said on this that I love Sendai the Tigers, and I love Indian summer. Yeah, I love that yeah. guitar part, and Adam has told me I'm mental yeah. for that. Yeah, it's a really good song. I really like that song. Because uh, you haven't like heard it, mate. Especially like the bit <laughs> yeah. two minutes in. Okay. Really big fan yeah. of that. Because obviously, it's like the parallels between Design for Life and Indian Summer are quite strong. They're both in 6-8. Yeah. They, um, they've both got Sally Herbert string arrangements. Um, they, uh, I think I'm correct in that. Um, but I think I think I've heard Design so many times that it's like it's hard for me to really have any perspective on it. And yeah, that's exactly Indian how Summer is like, it's, it's like Design for Life revisited. It, it feels like it's got the, the DNA of Design for Life. But and I, well, you know, I, I recorded the vocal with James for that for that song. Um, I, we spent. I think I've kept the comp sheet. It's like we would do like ten takes and comp, and then we do another ten takes. And we, he was looking for this ultimate vocal. Yeah. And I when I listened to it recently or the other day when I was doing this list, it was like, man, that vocal's great. You know, that was that was worth the whole day we spent just doing that vocal. You know, and it was like, and it feels like it's you know the the the. the yeah, I love the Pat Jones video he did for it. It's, it. It feels like a band kind of coming to terms with their kind of mortality and their, you know, and their career. And it's like, you know, if that was the last song they ever did, that would be quite a nice way to go out. Okay. That's yeah, going to make felt, me no, that, I'm not saying that, that was, that was like ever going to happen, but it just, <laughs> it, felt, it felt like a band becoming comfortable with their place in history kind of thing. So I think know, that sentiment like, yeah. is all over Send Away the Tigers as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so in your summer number two, and pretty predictably, Tolerate is, is my number one. Oh, that's because a great it's, pick. It's, yeah. Because it's one of the greatest songs ever ever made. And it's Lucas like, is a bit uh, meh on If You Tolerate This, which is, of I'm course, not a wrong opinion. I, I'm not <laughs> meh. I'm exactly like, exactly like what Greg just said with A Design for Life. It, I have the same thing with both Tolerate and Design for Life, which is just, it's, I find it quite hard to just, like, be objective about it because... It's omnipresent. It's that, it's that, it's that song I heard on the radio in the back of my dad's car a yeah. thousand times mm. yeah, for yeah, my entire yeah. childhood, and it's just like, it's just, it... Yeah. If you, if you ever feel a little bit 
meh about it, just go to the coda, just go to the playout section of the song and, and, and not be moved every time you hear it when it goes into that epic, soaring playout section. Yeah, like I, I definitely, I definitely like both of those songs. It's just yeah. I find it hard to to, to to see them as like. I guess they don't. The thing is, there's been no surprise. All the other yeah, manic yeah. songs I've learnt and yeah. gone, everything must go. Oh my god, this song's yeah. amazing because it's new. Whereas those songs, I'm like, yeah, 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 I know this one. I've heard it a million million times. Fine, next song. It's quite hard for me to like <laughs> latch on. Yeah, I remember. In the same way. I remember like hearing some versions of the song and you know before it was released and. But also, when the week it was going to be, it was it was released as a single. I was up in Scotland. I was driving from Gla- Edinburgh to Glasgow, and I stopped underneath the fourth bridge and put the Radio One chart show on. Mm. And and um, I thought there's a good chance that Manic will get their first number one today, and this would be really amazing. Having a really small part of you know the early days with the band, it'd be like, that'd be really cool. So I pulled the car up and I parked in the car park underneath the fourth bridge. And listen to the chart show, and and they interviewed. I think Nick. They were on a tour bus somewhere, and I, they interviewed uh, Nick on the tour bus. You know, so like, nah, Nicky, why you're now you are the number, Britain's number one? And it's like, it's like. So it was a really strong memory of that of when that was a hit, and and obviously it's, it's such a you know your first number one's a massive moment and stuff. So, so yeah, so it, it's it, it even though I was not directly involved with that song, you, you have quite a strong memory of you know of of its history. So. And it's yeah. just a great, it is, and I heard, I remember that Radio 1 play when it was, it was an exclusive Radio 1 play and it was like, man, that sounds great. You know, that, that coda section is just, you know, it's just so brilliant. And, and it was always great at gigs and, and I love, you know, the, the, just and the sonically Dave did such an amazing job on it. It's the, the, the oh, it's, it sounds, stuff it's such start, an incredible just, song, like, uh, and it is as relevant and sounds as fresh today as like it ever has done as well. I think so. I, I think yeah. And and it's, the video is great, and they look amazing in the video. You know, that is a like, creepy video. I can't wait to it go. It's one with the no face, and no mouth. Yeah, thing. no face. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's yeah. Like, yeah, it's um. But it, you know, they just they all look really handsome, and it's kind of like it's just like it's just mm. it's just like if you're gonna have a great video for a song, just look just look amazing in it, and yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that, that is my slightly unusual top ten. That is a great top ten, oh, and I loved I'll, it. I'll, I'll put that into a Spotify playlist so that our listeners can uh, listen back to it after they've listened to this episode. Um, I think that brings us uh, to the end of the episode. Unfortunately, I have yeah. one last question, uh, which is, Greg, no. will you produce my next album for free? <laughs> <laughs> I would if I could get out of New Zealand, but I'm oh, stuck yeah. here. Oh, See, that's, yeah. Okay, yeah. yeah, that's why. Yeah, I'm happy yeah. to come yeah. to New Zealand, Greg. I'm happy. <laughs> <laughs> you, come, you have to do... Well, firstly, if you, you can't come here unless you're a New Zealand citizen or permanent resident. I'll and find even a if way, you Greg. Are, you have to, do, you have to do two weeks quarantine. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I would say if, if you could jump on a plane tomorrow and come down, of course I would do it. But hey, oh, there you go. see you tomorrow, <laughs> Greg. <laughs> I'm, re- I'm ready to go. I'd actually can can you can you send me some of your songs? Because I would come in free to hear them. Uh, I can, yeah, I can. Um, oh, Adam, I you're about I, to give Adam anxiety <laughs> for the next two weeks whilst he goes, what did Greg think of my right. songs? You oh, could send, send me a link to the songs, but don't send me any qualifications. Like, okay. oh, I, you know, the I was just about to give you loads. I was about to give you loads. Yeah, because <laughs> if you do, I won't read them. I'll just listen to the songs. Okay. But so, you know, it's like, yeah, I, I don't, no, without any, you know, no qualifications, no explanations, just a link to the songs and I'll have a listen. All right, I I will send you like a Spotify playlist, and I will also edit this out. 
Yeah. Adam, can you <laughs> yeah. also please share with me and Steve the songs you choose to share with yeah, me? Yeah, and I'll read yeah. out the eviscerating email that Greg sends back You know, you sort of, uh, yeah, you, you, you learn tact in this job, so don't worry. I, I, I can be quite sort of, uh, I'll, be, I, yeah, I'll, try, I'll try and be positive. <laughs> I might love it. Is, I, I, you know, I, yeah, I you might. Anything. No one else does, but you might. On your <laughs> well, it, Adam, so. Adam, don't be so critical. Steve loves your music. Yeah. Uh, what are you trying to say about you, Luke? <laughs> I'm saying that I also love your music, but I've been okay. to, I've been to an Adam Scott Glasspool gig where I can hear Steve louder than Adam because Steve's singing along. Sure. <laughs> I'm a cool guy. I'm a cool guy. Uh, cool guy. Um, Greg, what are you sort of? Plugging or promoting at the moment? What what can we give a shout out to? Nothing. I'm just <laughs> great. I'm Thanks, living Greg. in New Zealand, loving, loving. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I'm I'm just um, just I, just want to give a shout out to Greg, living in New Zealand and loving life. Oh. Yeah, yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. Could, you could you could have. There's a record I did recently, which I single. This worth having a listen. It's the um, Echo, band Echo Park. Um, okay. With 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 Grant Nicholas from Feeder guest on guest vocals as well. There we go. Everyone so go and check really, out that. Echo really Park. really cool. Chris Sheldon mixed uh, did the Foo Fighters mixed it and it's um yeah it's a really cool single and it's and it's kind of nice because it's like they're a New Zealand rock band but they're like um I've got an old friend of mine from Wales guesting so this is this lovely kind of like combo of New Zealand and Wales and my past life and for and and, and new life kind of you know intertw- intertwining and uh, yeah so that give that a listen but you know. I'm beyond plugging stuff now. Okay. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and uh, just enjoying life. And please come and visit New Zealand when we open up again. I I would. I'd love to go to New Zealand. Zealand. It's a beautiful place. place. I'm in the South Island now and it's kind of, it's really great. And it's going to, it's in the middle of winter. It's going to snow today. Oh, that sounds absolutely beautiful. Uh, Greg, thank you so much for joining us. And thank thank you. you It's my pleasure. Good luck with the the next 16 years of albums. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. We're still only halfway. That's the thing. Yeah, Greg, please, (laughs) please listen to our Lifeblood episode because all the things I couldn't say today. I'll be saying. I'll be waiting for it's a pile of shit to comment from Lucas. (laughs) I have a strong suspicion that he likes it. Um, Thank you to all of our listeners. We shall see. (laughs) We shall see. Thank you to all of our listeners for listening. Um, You can get hold of us on Twitter at Manix Podcast. You can get hold of us on Instagram at Manix Podcast. And you can email us if you want to. We'll probably read it out. It's manixpodcast at gmail.com. We'll read it out as long as it's not, you know. Uh, a weird manifesto about me you want to take over the world um, <laughs> the, the only thing that's left for me to say really is to thank Greg Haver again uh, yeah, and thank you so much. to say uh, that we live in urban hell and we destroy rock and roll bye bye bye, bye.